Thanks for taking the time to download this BBC Radio 5 Live podcast. To search for other podcasts you might like, click bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live, where you'll also find our terms of use. Ready to go? I'll take silence to mean yes. Yeah, no, sorry. So I, I thought you were a teenager. Sorry, I didn't know that that was a question. I, I right. thought you meant ready to go as in I thought you were telling Here them we are. you're ready to we're go. Starting. In which case, me saying yes would just be superfluous, right. which actually would be like talking to a teenager. Are you ready to go, Mark? I've got a really good joke for you. Okay, go on. So I'll tell you, this, this is a joke that Richard Hawley told me. How do you know if there's a vegan in the room? Don't, don't worry. Know. Don't worry. They'll tell you about it. That's very good. Although, from a timing point of view, you I know, at least yeah. have waited for me to say, I don't know. How do you tell if there's a vegan? Anyway, anyway, okay, fine. Let's stop. Do you want to try it again? No, are we, but are we doing the, Oh, so are we doing this? I think this is it now. I think oh, clearly, the, 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 by the look of ecstasy on our production team's faces, they, they're counting this as the start of the show. Okay, all right. So let me do it again. How do you know if there's a vegan in the room? I don't know, Mark. How do you tell if there's a vegan in the room? Just don't worry. They'll tell you about it. <laughs> What's up? Um, <laughs> now... Always at this time of year, you get annoyed because I keep saying, where are you? But I'm only yes. doing that because people arrive and join us at different times. So at the start of the show, in about yeah. 15 minutes' time, I will be doing this all over again because people will have joined us. But for yeah. everyone who's here at the, the hardcore, yeah. the vanguard, uh, who are here at the beginning... The where vanguard are, East. Where are you? I'm in Shetland. I'm in BBC Radio Shetland, where I come every time uh, this year, this time of year, because this is now the 10th anniversary uh, Shetland Screenplay Film Festival, which I'm sort of very proud to be a part of. And it's really fabulous. And I keep saying to you every year, you must come. And every year you say, well, I'm really busy doing other stuff like All Request Friday, because that mm-hmm. like takes up so much time to mm-hmm. just like say to somebody else, what do you want me to play? OK, I'll just play that. And uh, But so far, Amaris Ante's coming up in just a bit. In fact, I think she's going to make a brief appearance on the show. Yes. Uh, Richard Hawley came up to talk about Love Is All, which is a film that he made with Kim Longinotto, which I reviewed on the show a while back. And then he did a gig here, which was absolutely brilliant. There's a guy called Jason Singh who does this fantastic thing. Jason Singh. He does this vocal beatbox accompaniment to silent films. And he accompanied this silent film uh, from the 20s called Drifters about the herring industry. And I tell you, this sounds like damning with faint praise. It is the most thrilling and exciting silent about film the about the herring industry, industry you have ever seen. Uh, when it, with uh, his honestly, his uh, his vocal accompaniment to it, it was stunning. I mean, I do you know I play in a band that play along with um with silent films, and you know I thought that was quite an accomplishment. But it's literally him with a microphone doing this stuff with his voice, and and it's unbelievable it is really genuinely unbelievable and ian softly's here he's showing k-pax which i'm a big fan of and anyway so loads and loads of stuff his love is all anything to do with that roger roger glover song from a few years ago do you remember what's no how does that go (sighs) i'm not gonna sing it no go on sing it no i'm not gonna sing it you you know when i said i'm not gonna sing it yeah but that's just like you what you what you want have i ever sung anything on the show ever yes no i haven't yes you have once love is all Roger Glover and the Butterfly Ball. It's you very just, good. You right. just looked it up, though. No, I'm just saying. I'm just wondering if it's ever made it onto the show. Well, I don't know, because if you sang me a bit of it, I could tell you whether I'd heard no, it. No, if I sang it, it would just confuse the issue. Why? Can you not sing? I don't think... I, I, I sing to my own private level of satisfaction. That that sounds really bizarre. What do, you, what do you mean you sing... If we can... you All right. Can we find Roger Glover, Love Is All? Do you remember the Woody Allen film? There's an animation. There's actually an animation that goes with it, as well. You really should know it. Well, I I, I might know it. I would know it better if you just sang me a few Love bars of it, and I'd be able to say yes, I recognise it. 
Why can't mm. you just sing me a bit of it? Because uh, to re- this is like being at home. To repeat myself, you know that question, uh, the answer I gave you a few minutes ago? That one. Okay, fine. Do, do, it, the, do it the other way around, okay? Yeah. Uh, uh, let, let me mention a song, okay? So, um, uh, do you know the Greenfields of France? No. How's it go? Well, how do we believe my pride? I do know Fine. There we go. And then it's I didn't even do it very well. If you called it William McBride, I'd have known that. Because he's also no. But then, but then the thing wouldn't have worked because the point was the demonstration of I could see somebody sings a bit. But Mark, you you sing in a band. No, I don't. I don't sing in a band. I'm a bassist. That's completely different. I, you know, I do backing singing in a band. And when you do the lead vocals, that somehow doesn't. That's just that's just like the drummer coming forward for a little moment. Helen Rose on an email. Hello, Helen. My name is Helen Rose, and I'm an expat NCG living in Boston, Massachusetts. After consulting the iWitter app, from which you benefit greatly, I noticed a fair number of Wittertainees in the Boston area. Boston recently welcomed a new Consul General, Harriet Cross who is Her Majesty's representative in the in the New England area. That's you, that's not me. Something, something is obviously just arrived. A file has just arrived. <laughs> I discovered that the new Consul General is a member of, the, of your church and an iWitter user, and I would like to welcome her, her husband and their cat to the Boston area. If I run into her on the street, I promise to say hello to Jason Isaacs. There you go. I, to be perfectly honest, I didn't even know that there is something like a Consul General in Boston. No, me neither. Representing a Majesty's, rep- you know. But now, but now that we know that he's a he's, he's a member of the church, we, we shall we shall mail him regularly. You know that little tinkly tinkly noise. Yeah, I think it meant that the songs arrived. So anyway, oh fine. Just in case there's anyone who's still with us, yeah. and they don't want to wait right to the very end. <laughs> a Roger Glover, "Love Is All" song sounds like this. Everybody's got to live together. All the people got to understand. So love your neighbor like you love your brother. Come on and join the band. Well, all you need is love and understanding. All you need is love and understanding. Ring the bell and let, the, the, bell and let the people know. Big chorus then. Do you know that? No. Okay, fine. Uh, this is from. Um, so frankly, even if you'd done a really brilliant version of that, it would have been pointless. It would have been no good. Which and actually, is... all it would have done is reinforced this idea that you have that you can't sing. And because you would have thought that, of course, I know the song, but the reason I'm not getting it is because you can't sing. Well, you can hear from the way Roger Glover said he's kind of doing He's quite throaty and quite thrusty. Uh, and so I just thought that wouldn't. I didn't think throaty and thrusty was a was a good sound for this show, really. So early right. on, I did think he was going to say it the ugly bug ball, but he didn't. He said, that, it, "Now there's a good song. There, there is a brilliant song. Now that I do know. Right, we we should probably put. <laughs> we'll do a little burr lives at the end of the show, shall we? <laughs> yes, I've been driving around for the last few weeks with nothing but a Flanders and Swan CD in the car. As a result of it could be worse. Yeah, I know. Believe me, it could be a lot worse. And it it, it is a joy. It's the gift that keeps giving. Do they sing Burr Lives tunes on that song? 
No, but it's just because you said Burr Lives, and then I was thinking of other things that we've mentioned on the show before. And a couple of weeks ago, we played some um, Flanders and Swan, and I had t- taken it off. Oh, for heaven's sake, it's because you mentioned something, and I was... Oh, never mind. Shelley Eden says, uh, Dear Doctor and Doctor, LTL, Colonial Commoner, LLB, Dip Bus Admin, Grade 1 Ballet Part, etc. I write to report a severe case of altitude-adjusted lacrimosity syndrome. This is Arles, of course. I am a woman of a particular age, single, and have been for some time, both single and of a particular age. <laughs> and I'm fine with it. No, really. Yes, that's, that's like that thing in Twilight when she says, how old are you? And he says, 17. And she says, how long have you been 17? And he says, a while. <laughs> it's a bit like that. So um, Shelley continues. Yes, if a swarthy Wittertainee were to cross my path using the iWitter app, the profits from which you and the BBC both are planning to retire on, I hear, I wouldn't object to a soft roll together whilst watching the special screening of The Exorcist this Friday at my local multiplex. Yes, really, it's on this week. Fantastic. But I digress. Single and happy, that's me. So you can imagine my horror when on a flight to Brisbane last week, in a seemingly harmless watch of How to Be Single, I was struck by an acute case of Arles. Suddenly, my life was in ruins. I was so desperately unhappy. Tears streamed down my face at the poignancy of the character's attempts to find love. I flung my face into my hands and sobbed at my loneliness and heartbreak. The plane landed while the movie was still playing, but I kept listening as I tearfully retrieved my bag, perfectly sized for one person's item, (laughs) from the overhead locker, after making sure I opened it carefully in case the contents had shifted during the flight. Suddenly I realised all my symptoms had gone. I returned to terra firma, literally and figuratively, and happily went on my way through duty-free and customs, where I declared my fruit-based device and three giant triangular chocolate bars. The moral of the story, if you are struck with a bad case of Arles, as I was, do not abandon hope. This too will pass, and everything will be all right. On the subject of which... Um, Mystic Mark became Psychic Simon last week. Yeah, after Mystic Mark was proven that he did, he was not Mystic at all. So let's see if we can do this quickly. We got Go um, an email from Rob York, okay, yeah. uh, and he was sort of he was miles away. Anyway, so I was just hyper. He'd been volunteering at the Rio Olympics. Do you remember right. that? Yes. And uh, we didn't really know much about him because he said next week I'm in the Amazon. So and then we kind of speculated as to what we knew about him. Hmm. Um, and I speculated like this. So, How old is he? No idea. Let's guess. I'm thinking he's 23 and he's from Maidenhead. So I think he's been at university. He's probably left university where he almost certainly did the arts. I think he probably went to Surrey University. Surrey University. Uh, I think French and something else, maybe French and literature. He was engaged when yeah. he was at university, but they split up now. So that's why he went to, to Rio to sort of get away from her. Wow. And she was called Lindsay. No. Psychic Simon. <laughs> Well, Rob, Rob's been in touch. It was like being in Manhunter. I was just, I was really there. Amazingly, I was right in every single department. What do you mean? No. All of those predictions were right. Okay, fine. Simon and Mark, says Rob, back in the UK after my fantastic adventure in the Amazon, after listening to your podcast where you read out my email, I thought I'd write back concerning your predictions as to who I am. Uh, I'm actually 40, not 23. I studied BSc ONS, Chemical and Pharmaceutical Sciences at Sunderland University many years ago. <laughs> so not the arts then. So stick to the, de- stick to the day job. But I think I'm still going to carry on with a little bit of psychicness. Yes. Because that was just like a trial run. And I feel as though my psychic juices are beginning to 
bubble and ferment. Can I say the point of a trial run is to see whether something works? That's the essence of a trial. I'm and... getting there. Yeah, I okay. feel as though I'm, I'm, I'm just getting hot on this. Okay. Right. So, so what, are you going to get before we... Get no, 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 because we've got to stop now for the show. Oh, that's convenient. Yes, it is very convenient. Okay. But anyway, I'll tell you what, Simon, do yeah. it very quickly. I'm thinking of a number between one and ten. What number am I thinking of? Seven. Yes. Thank you. I told you I was hot. Hot, hot, hot. <laughs> What's your blog about, by the way? Oh, uh, Gene Wilder. Okay, here we go. Fade us up, fade us up. Here we go. Thank you. The opening scene in the new Bridget Jones movie has Rennie Zellweger sitting on a sofa eating ice. I know I've signed a thing saying I can't talk about it. But, anyway. but you're going to do it anyway because you just don't care. And over, the, over her loudspeakers is coming all by myself. And it's sad because she's just sitting there. She used to have someone who she used to sort of spend time with, but that other person has gone. Okay. Are, In, you, su are you suggesting that because I've come to the Shetland Screenplay Film Festival, we've broken up? No, no, I was just feeling as though I was by myself. You're just feeling sorry for yourself. I am indeed. Because you're in the studio and I'm up in fabulous Shetland having a brilliant time with the likes of, you know, Richard Hawley and Amara Santi and, you know, Ian Softley. And you're just there in the studio on your own. Have you got a bucket full of ice cream? Although I have had Killian Murphy, Jamie Dornan uh, and also Rennie Zellweger, Colin Firth. Uh, you know, so the, 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 you know, I've been fine on the celeb front. Thanks very much. I know you're concerned. I see that the tagline for the new Bridget Jones movie is we're going to need bigger pants. Yeah, well, that's, that's pretty good. And uh, <laughs> I should say Rene and Colin are on the show next week, by the way. Very good. And what's most entertaining about our time together was the fact that while they're setting up the microphones, Colin spent about two minutes explaining to Rene about the show and how it works and... What did he say? It was great. No, he was, you know, he was absolutely clearly very excited about explaining who we all are and how we fit in the. Um, and he, Rennie was appeared to be very excited. Anyway, very good. Maybe she was just acting. Anyway, why are you in Shetland, Mark? Remind me. Because <laughs> it's the, it's the, well, it's actually this is the tenth anniversary screenplay festival. This is the tenth year that I've been doing this. This is the tenth year that on this Friday you have started the show by saying, Mark, why are you in Shetland? Yes, well, Shetland it's, it's a public service because people might be thinking, well, Mark sounds slightly different, and why aren't you in the same studio? So, it's you know. the UK's most northerly film festival, and we have fabulous things going on. So Richard Hawley was up here with Kim Longinotto, who's the documentary maker who made Love Is All, which I love. Um, we had this brilliant screen. I've just, I keep talking about this. Um, Jason Singh, who's this guy who does this this beatbox, live vocal beatbox accompaniment to this brilliant 1920s film about herring fishing called Drifters, which is just fantastic. I know it may not immediately sound like the most spectacular thing, but it really is. Uh, Amra Santi's coming up. Uh, in fact, I think she's going to come on the show very briefly at about half past three. And Ian Softley's here, who made Hackers, which you and I both love, which was recently re-released on Blu-ray in America, and now everyone's saying it's fabulous. And I just feel like going, yeah, where were if you? you get, if you get a chance at? to get the soundtrack of, of Hackers... I've still got it somewhere because it's... It's genius. Well, it's got like 37 techno disco tracks. And Squeeze. And then the very, very last <laughs> track, a beautiful ballad love Twice. song from Squeeze, <laughs> which doesn't fit at... And for all the world, it's... You know what? I'm determined that this song will fit the last scene. Yeah. It's Love You Tonight, isn't it? Yeah, I think yeah. so. Or anyway, Need You Tonight, whatever it is. It's beautiful, yeah. but it's the only kind of song... In the entire movie, everything yeah. else is uh, is is high tech and very good. And it plays out over the thing of, of Johnny Lee Miller and uh, Angelina Jolie in the in the swimming pool on the rooftop. 
Have you seen it recently? I wonder, because sometimes those movies date very, very quickly. But anything that's really high-tech and computer-based, you look at that and go, wow, that looks very old. No, I have seen it recently, because we did a 35mm screening of it down in Truro. And the the best thing about it is it hasn't aged. And the reason it hasn't aged is because when they were doing all that stuff, you know, going through the circuits of the computers, they did it physically. They built this sort of physical city that was meant to be the world of the computers. And they shot all that stuff. And, of course... As uh, as Ian Softley has pointed out on a number of occasions, the entire special effects department who made Hackers all then went on to work on Interstellar. So they, everyone, like literally everyone on wow. Interstellar, learnt their trade on Hackers. So Box Office Top 10 coming up in just a moment, uh, plus our special guests who are Jamie Dornan and Killian Murphy, who star in Anthropoid, which is the story of Operation Anthropoid, which, as I mentioned uh, earlier, was the, the name given to the plot to assassinate Reinhard Heydrich. There will be a lot more of that coming up in future months because if you read HHHH, which is an extraordinary book, that's the same story and that's going to be a movie uh, too. I wonder if you can help James in Warrington, first of all. I shall do my best. I've been catching up on recent podcasts. What with the great summer of sport to enjoy, he says, and happened on the correspondence from a fellow church member inquiring if it was okay to make a noise in the cinema in order to use one's inhaler, thus preventing an asthma attack and possible death. We ruled on that. We said it was. This reminded me of a story told to me by my nan. She frequented the cinema one evening and settled into a chair to enjoy the feature, as they used to call it. A little while into the film, the gentleman behind her began to make a rather strange noise. This continued for a short while and then ceased abruptly. You might be ahead of me. (laughs) It's not funny. I don't know how bad the film was, because my nan couldn't remember, but the gentleman had sadly died just behind him. The sound he was making was apparently something that can sometimes be heard when one is taking one's last breath and occasionally referred to as the death rattle. In relation to this, says James, I felt that an adjudication would be helpful on whether or not it is acceptable within the code to make a noise whilst dying in the cinema, even if it is beyond your control. So... (laughs) I see I think okay. I don't think you I don't think you should and if you think that you might just drop dead unexpectedly then don't go to the movies. If that is that's that's your general sort well, of Well I think it would be a distraction for everybody else just think be considerate think of other people. I was very impressed recently though that we were I was in, a, in, a, in a, an old cinema and Actually, I think again I think it was in Truro and they had these the original uh flyers for the cinema that said that if you were a doctor um, and you were expecting a phone call, or if you're an important person, then please remember to tell the kiosk which seat you were in, so that in the middle of the feature, somebody could run in and go, Dr. Gloucester, uh, line three, and then you'd have to go out and take the phone call. I think that's a good system. Yeah. Uh, before we do the box office top ten, just a word with, uh, this is uh, Danny Joseph. Uh, Dear Doctors, this Saturday, on a patch of grass in Sirencester, I will be finally tying the knot with my partner of six years, Sam Joseph. Congratulations. Sam is an LTL, a long-time listener. And over the last six years, he has gradually converted me to the church, although we got off to a good start as our first date was a trip to the local world of Sydney to see the Oscar-worthy Piranha 3D. Sam has often been spotted downloading the podcast on his generic fruit-based device before heading out of the house. And in the last few years, we have taken to listening to the good... Doctors together, either on long car trips, weekends doing DIY, <clears throat> excuse me, or out digging on our allotment. Recently, though, my husband to be has forgotten about this unsaid arrangement and has been guilty of enjoying your dulcet tones solo. This led me to investigate. I th- that's cheating, isn't it? Well, I think so. This led me to investigate how practical it would be to include the words, I will never listen to Wittertainment without my wife 
in our upcoming nuptials. Alas, I discovered this too late for Gloucestershire County Council Registry Office and we'll have to settle for the normal vows about money, death and stuff. <laughs> My second option was to invite you both to our special day. However, you were both off on your cruise when the invites went out and Royal Mail returned to sender. My final option then is this email, which, if read out on this week's programme, will be played at our dinner reception as a surprise for my then newly confirmed husband. Look at him over there, looking all embarrassed and going, oh... Does that mean that you we are, like, right now playing at a dinner reception? I mean, in the, in the future, obviously. Yes, yes, Just yes. say hello to everyone at the dinner reception. How are the starters? Uh, yes, and was it probably crab? Probably crab. Well, you mean you ate something, you weren't sure it was crab, but you thought it was probably crab. It, it doesn't matter what it was. It tasted like crab. Then it was chicken, <laughs> and then it was a pudding, which was a little bit disappointing. Because, probably a moose, but you can't, you have to spend, you have to save a little bit of cash, and you always save on the pudding, so you have a cheap moose. <laughs> nothing worse than a cheap moose. Anyway, where's the Woody going? Allen uh, anyway, routine? Isn't that's it? right. Shot a cheap moose. This will assure me. Anyway, so uh, my newly confirmed husband. This will assure me that he has not broken his promise of us listening to you both together, and will make our wedding day even more special because getting married is obviously not special enough. Hopefully, Psychic Simon and Mystic Mark will confirm that ours will be a long and witiful marriage as long as he never tells me that BF, BBS Dodge wasn't that bad ever again. Danny well, Joseph, Nay Baker. Yeah, although, he, I mean, he may make the argument that in the, in the longer director's cut, it wasn't that bad. Well, also, it depends. If he said it's not, you know, some people have said it's the worst movie ever made, but I think no, it wasn't not. that bad, in which case that's yeah. OK. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And anyway, you know, it's all to do with difference of opinion. No, what am I talking about? No, that's rubbish. Anyway, it doesn't matter. The moose was still disappointing. Uh, box office top ten. And a moose. And it was a very. It is a very funny. It is uh, a very yeah, which we're not going to do. A stand-up routine or include anywhere because it'll cost us a fortune in words. <laughs> so the box office top ten. Mechanic Resurrection is at number ten. So now this uh, wasn't screened, which is a shame because it's a Jason Statham film. So I'm going to catch that this on Monday in London. So tell me, do we have a, an email? We have, yes, 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 from Jonas, who says, uh, Mechanic Resurrection, the utterly ludicrous, wholly unnecessary return of Jason Statham as Arthur Bishop, basically a bald, more angry version of MacGyver. Unlike the crank or transporter <laughs> films, Mechanic Resurrection has no real sense of its own ridiculousness. Even the central swimming pool set piece, which looks so promising on the poster, is handled with bored detachment by director Dennis Gansel. The Stath is watchable as ever, though, and just when you think the film has no surprises left, Tommy Lee Jones pops up as a goatee sporting arms dealer named Max. Instead of just picking up the cheque and be done with it, old Leatherface turns in what must be his most animated, knowingly camp performance since Under Siege. But it's not that much of a surprise, because I think he's in the trailer. Very good. David Brent, Life on the Road's number nine. I, I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was uh, actually one of the few TV shows that then converts to a film in which they had managed to... to, to capture what it was that was funny about the original meaning that it's wince inducing and difficult to watch it also in expanding it to a feature length film builds up uh, the sense of pathos so it's not just that it's excruciating there is a, a sense of sadness and pathos at the heart of it which is important because otherwise I think the jokes wouldn't work as well as they do and I it passed the six laughs test very very easily and I still think the funniest joke in it is the joke about pension funds if you're emailing uh, about it if you used if you if you take the initials of the uh, of the title of this film it is problematic because it does look as though you're actually communicating about Lord of the Rings but um, Martin <laughs> Martin Hannant I worked out what you were talking about 
Life on the road passed the six laugh test in the first few minutes, exactly as Marcus just said. However, it became apparent the film was meandering its way through a series of repetitive and occasionally forced one-note jokes. The laughs, unfortunately, became less frequent. To me, the film offered only the occasional glimpse of character development, which largely failed to justify the film's rushed and ham-fisted ending. Um, Hannah Gatwood in Cricklewood. Despite Mark's positive review last week, I went into the film with low expectations. Having been a huge fan of both The Office and Extras, I felt that Ricky Gervais has become an unfunny parody of himself over the years, with countless disappointing appearances and lazy, low-bar writing. I'm therefore happy to report that The Resurrection of David Brent was a total success. Never have I gone from shrieking with laughter to attempting to hide under my dress in excruciating embarrassment to the warm glow of hopeful sentiment so quickly. This is a reminder of how great Gervais's writing is and what made The Office so brilliant in the first place. Good, I agree with that. Uh, Lights Out at number eight. Which I liked. I enjoyed it much more than I thought I was going to. It's it's a good, well-put-together sort of uh, Oogaboo movie in which it's not just doing this sort of quiet, quiet bang stuff. It's actually constructed its its shocks quite well. It's uh, got a very, very snappy running time. And uh, I went to see it with uh, with Dave Norris, who is always sort of very you know critical of the way something is presented. We both agreed that it it was purely functional, but it did what it was setting out to do, and it did it better than most movies. We were very, very pleasantly surprised. Joanna Brooks says, having been sort of dumped last Friday night. Oh, oh I'm very sorry. But it's only sort of, so maybe they're maybe they're going to get back. To, anyway, is it going to be all right? She says. Yes. I could think of nothing better to cheer me up the following morning than to go and see a horror film on my own with a bag full of code-compliant snacks. I went to see Lights Out without having read a synopsis, seen a trailer or, shockingly, heard Mark's review. I was therefore surprised to hear last week's podcast and find that Mark didn't share my problems with the film and thought there was no better time than the present to write in for the first time. So here we go. Although it had some good scares and a great premise, I I can't be wholly comfortable with what happened in Lights Out because of its blatant representation of mental illness. Having borrowed a lot from the plot of The Babadook, this film needed also to pinch some of its subtlety and ambiguity in order to make the conclusion vaguely acceptable. As it stands, Lights Out goes next to films such as The Purge in my pile of great premise, poor execution horror films and pales in comparison to the original sub-three-minute short film. Okay, yeah, the the three minute, the sub three minute short film uh, is is very very powerful. Um, okay, I mean, I, uh, I it's an interesting point. It's not one that I completely agree with, but thank you for making it on the subject of uh, getting over being dumped by going to see a horror film. Oh, that's a time honoured tradition. I remember going to see Clive Barker's Hellraiser under those circumstances and really enjoying it. And did it make it all right? In oh the yes, end? it did. Yeah, it made everything fine. Okay. Uh, so Lights Out is at number eight. The BFG is at number seven. Well, I think we probably kind yeah. of... Uh, we both really liked it. Yeah, and Jason Bourne, that's at number six. We both really liked it. Yep. Uh, the Purge, election year. You were just talking about The Purge just now. I mean, the interesting thing with The Purge election year is that it, despite the fact that it's the most overtly political of the of the three, it's actually less punchy than number two. What happened between the first one, which the writer director described as almost like a little an art house movie that somehow broke out of its uh, you know of its original source, um, with the second one you did feel like they were expanding it out and taking some more of the landscape in. This does feel a lot more like treading water, despite the fact that. 
in its setup, which is that you have basically, um, you know, an election and a woman who believes in, you know, liberty and freedom and getting away with getting away from the purge versus a corrupt, you know, mad sort of tyrannical regime seems to have perhaps certain, uh, you know, modern day relevances. Oddly enough, in the end, it, it does end up just being a sort of generic action film, which is a shame. It's like it doesn't really have the strength of its convictions. I didn't think it was terrible. I just thought it was pretty ordinary. James Kirkpatrick. On Sunday, myself and lapsed wittertainy David made the trip to see the latest offering in the Purge series. All I can say about the film is it's one of the most stupid, unsubtle and over-the-top films I have ever seen. And I had a great time. (laughs) (laughs) I love the way you said that. And I had a great time. Sure, it had trashy action and had nowhere near the amount of political smarts it thought it had. Yes, I agree with that. But it just became a huge joke with me. And David silently in stitches at some of its greater excesses. A brilliantly stupid time at the cinema. And a what's up for David? We'll get him back into the fold. Well, he's easily won back, is what I can say. Uh, War Dogs is at number four. I mean, again, a slight problem in as much as it doesn't quite know how cynical to be about its uh, anti-heroes. I mean, basically, it's uh, inspired by a real-life story, but it's a kind of very, very uh, black comedy about these two Miami stoners who become uh, arms dealers. And because that's a very difficult tone to get right. And on the one hand, you think what it's going to be is the kind of boys behaving badly shtick of the hangover. And on the other hand, it sort of has these aspirations to being something which is more substantial than that. I mean, the film it reminded me of the most was Deal of the Century, which is that film from 1983 with Chevy Chase, which nobody remembers and flopped very, very badly. This this is a you know more successful and more popular film than that. It's got a terrific central performance by Jonah Hill, who is great and absolutely dominates the screen. I just... I wish that it was nastier about its central characters. I wish that it was willing to get its, its, you know, more dirt under its nails about the subject matter. Harry Steele says, I liked but not loved War Dogs, whilst Jonah Hill's unscrupulous arms dealer was entertaining enough for the film not to drag. By the time the credits rolled, I hadn't learned anything new. Over two hours, we watched Miles Teller discover what the audience learns from the opening monologue, that war is big business and morally questionable. Yeah. War Dogs aims to be the social network for gun runners, which is pretty niche when you think about it, but is not nearly as innovative as that movie was. There's um, a there's a moment in it when they go to, 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 to Vegas to this arms conference and the guy says, what's it like? He says, well, it's like Comic-Con with grenades. And actually that sort of level of gaggery goes all the way through the film and that's pretty much as far as it gets in terms of getting under the skin of anything. It's, it is very, very superficial. Uh, Suicide Squad is at number three. Brief, a brief sample here. Rosie Fletcher. I got unexpectedly dumped this week and it's still not as bad as the fact that he took me to see Suicide Squad. <laughs> <laughs> Which is pretty neat, really. Um, David uh, in Derry. That's a, that's a Roger Ebert review. That is really lovely. It's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. Well done, Rosie. Uh, I'm writing... In fact, someone else should now... Take up the gauntlet, I think, and realise that in Rosie Fletcher, there's someone to be admired and cherished. Yes. Well, of course. I think we all knew that, didn't we? Oh, yeah. That's right. Obviously. Um, David in Derry. I'm writing in to give my opinion on Suicide Squad, which I presume will still be in the top ten, proving once again that just because a film makes money doesn't make it any good. I went to see Suicide Squad knowing about the negative reviews, but thought, if it does turn out to be rubbish, it might be so bad it's entertaining. Well, I was wrong. (laughs) This film is one of the most boring viewing experiences I have ever had in a cinema. For me, the writing is the problem. The plot is non-existent. The characters don't seem to have any motive for doing what they're doing other than being bad guys. Margot Robbie is the best thing about this film. She gives it all... 
she gives it her all despite the poor material being thrown at her. A massive letdown is the relationship between her character Harley Quinn and Jared's Le- Jared Leto's Joker. The backstory between these two characters was portrayed so poorly on screen, I almost wished I could wipe this film from existence. Sadly, I can't, and the DC Universe will continue from this point. I only hope the films improve, but that might be wishful thinking. It is worth saying that in terms of saying that the problems are with the, uh, with the script, when a film has been edited like that, it's really impossible to tell whether the problems are with the script. I mean, I think the big problem with it is it, it's been re-edited by, as far as anyone can tell, the people that made the trailer. And it really is a film that's been edited with a food blender, and that's its really big problem. Uh, this from um, this from, uh, Andrew Ross uh, in Kings Caswell. I got that right. He did okay. spell it out phonetically, and I think that's right. Kings Kurz- Kings Kurzweil. Kings Kurzweil. Kings Kurzweil. There you go. That sounds so much better when you said that. It's probably pronounced luxury yacht. That's the one. Uh, I went to see Suicide Squad after hearing a few bad reviews of it, but thought, well, how bad can it be? I'm pretty forgiving when it comes to cinema and usually find something good to think about as I leave the cinema. It wasn't even meh. I would have been okay with meh. Slow as a slug with a broken foot, boring as a 20-year-old woodworm. I didn't know 20-year-old woodworm was boring. (laughs) Didn't know slugs had feet. Disjointed as reading the dictionary, not sure how they could have made such a bad film when it had such potential. Harlequin was by far the best character. Deadshot was also good, but there were too many characters and I didn't really care about any of them. Maybe next time they could ask someone to write a decent script like Jane Goldman. Uh, Thank you, Ross. Andrew, who is in King's Kurzweil, as you correctly said. Uh, but it's hanging in there, so presumably uh, the yeah. amount of money it's made is going to make it just the first. Yeah, and it just goes to show, sequence. once again, please, filmmakers, don't complain about bad reviews. They make no difference to your box office whatsoever. Uh, number two is Bad Moms. Which I went into with a sense of trepidation and uh, worry and potential despair. And uh, after having enjoyed a pizza on a Wednesday night, so I was going completely crazy, sat there and just laughed all the way through and i went to see it with the professor and we both laughed pretty much all the way through i mean it's not perfect the professor her outdoors the professor her outdoors in, in shetland yeah exactly um uh but uh it was it was one of the things you know it, it, it doesn't have the depth of bridesmaids and it, it 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 does suffer to some extent from the fact that its central harassed character never looks quite as harassed as she's meant to look but for just for sheer consistency of gags and it what's in my opinion the most entertaining out to, you know uh, uh what do you call it uh, for final credits reel of or, you know usually you just get these outtake scenes that aren't funny at all the final credits thing in this is actually really charming and really moving and uh, both the prof and i laughed all the way through i wonder if people might be put off by the poster which make it look as though it's going to be a certain type of film and actually from the way you've described it and and also the way this email is about to describe it it sounds far cleverer than that yeah it is i mean i i'd seen both the poster and the trailer and neither of them made me have positive thoughts about the film and i went to see it because because i you know i wanted to see it for, because i knew it was going to be in the charts and i can't tell you how surprised i was when it when it was it i mean i got a a, a message from mike mccarhill who's a fellow critic who i respect very much and he said no believe me i was surprised at how much you enjoyed it well, here's an email from Halima, who's a long-time listener and a subscriber to our obscenely profitable iWitter app. Yeah. Mark and Simon, last weekend I saw Bad Moms with a girlfriend and fellow mum of young children on an evening escape from domestic and maternal duties. 
Whilst not as sharp as bridesmaids, it was still really enjoyable as a sort of mean girls for mums and had my friend and I chuckling or smiling throughout. I don't know if it was intentional, but the timing of the film's release was inspired, coming at the end of the very long school summer holidays when mums are just about hanging on to their sanity by their fingernails. I completely agree with Mark. Now, I've heard this pronounce, I've, I've heard her name pronounced Mila and Mia this week. Yeah. What did you go for? Mia, I think. Right. Just sort of blur it. Yeah, I sort of... Mm. Anyway, she looked in no way as haggard and overwrought as her character is supposed to be. But I right, think yeah, that yeah. is obviously part of the movie's perfect blend of reality and escapism. The emotionally draining and guilt-ridden nature of raising and also managing the extracurricular schedules of young children while trying to juggle work and be the perfect homemaker at the same time is humorously and accurately portrayed. I loved the scene early on in the film where Kunis's character is back from work, laden with shopping bags, whips up an incredible-looking dinner whilst thanking her husband and kids for their patience <laughs> whilst they sit at the dinner table That's waiting right. to be served. <laughs> Admittedly, is impossibly gorgeous in the film with her glossy blow-dried hair and perfect figure and even looks lovely when she cries. So for a few hours of escapism for us real-life mums, she's an ideal heroine. Throw in a couple of well-played kooky friends, a hunky widower, of course, and some evil PTA mums, and the result was some surprisingly good comedy dialogue. The totally predictable plot and American movie cliches did not detract from the charm and feel-good factor of the film. Don't be put off by the awful trailer. This is a fun film that will appeal to many, but especially resonate with mums. Do wait for the credits, though. They are very sweetly done. There, yeah, there we go. Yeah, Well, I agree with that entirely. That's, that's really eloquently put, and I'm really, really glad. Thank you, Dr Halima, um, uh, for that. Thank you. From the University of Birmingham. Uh, and the UK's number one is still Finding Dory. Which I thought was really sweet. Um, again, I was slightly trepidatious about it because it was the, 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 the sequel that people weren't crying out for. And since you know Finding Nemo has become such a classic, if you, if you have young kids you know, any time over the past decade, you, know, you will have seen it over and over and over again because every Everyone's got it on DVD, but I thought it was charming and affecting, and uh, and I, you know, the animation was done with the usual love and care and attention. I thought it was very sweet, and it raised a chuckle and indeed a tear. Special guests on the way: Killian Murphy and Jamie Dornan talk about their new movie, which is Anthropoid. We're going to discuss the title because it's a very interesting choice of title after this clip. That's our man. Five minutes after nine. He's riding solo today. Wait. I'm Descon. 30 seconds behind. 30 seconds. 30 seconds, 30 seconds. If we can use a rope or a steel cable to stop the Mercedes. And 30 seconds. And 30 seconds would be all we need. Even if a rope can't stop the car, we still need more than 30 seconds to escape from here. And we'd have to face the armed guard here in the open. It would not be my first choice. And it was our only choice. And that's a clip from Anthropoid starring uh, Killian Murphy, Jamie Dornan. Gentlemen, uh, good afternoon. How are you? Good. Thanks. Very good. Very well. How are you? Okay. Yeah, I'm doing very well. Good. So uh, Anthropoid must be the most unusual title for a World War II action drama. Just explain the story and, uh, and the title, please. Well, the title, I'm, I'm going to get this wrong probably, but it's Greek in origin. And I think it means like, uh, almost human or not quite human and I think the reason that was picked was because obviously uh, Heydrich was is more like a monster than a human being you know for, for those of you who know about him he was third ranking in the, in, the, in the third Reich in the Nazi hierarchy and he was kind of the architect of the final solution and uh, just a bad creature all, all yeah. around 
In fact, I think people when you, when you when you talk about that, people might remember seeing on television Ken Branner played Heydrich in Conspiracy, which was a TV drama, which was the um, fancy conference in which the whole final solution was kind of drawn up. So this is the the plan to kill Reinhard Heydrich, and you play. Uh, Josef Gabcic and Jan Kubisch. Have I got the accent? Have I got the roughly right? You've definitely got Kubisch right. Gabcic, isn't Gabcic, it? I think. Gabcic. Yeah. And Killian, you're Slovak? Yes, yeah. And Jamie, you're Czech? Yeah, Moravian, yeah. A Moravian. Okay, so explain, because we see you, uh, the movie starts as you as you parachute. And who, who are you? How have you been picked? So we play, um, as you said, Josef Gabcic and Jan Kubisch here, two Czech soldiers who have been trained in the United Kingdom actually for what, four years, weren't mm-hmm. they there? And um, they've been parachuted back into Nazi-occupied Prague uh, with this mission, Anthropoid, to assassinate Reinhard Heydrich. There's other soldiers who are parachuted in at the same time, but the, the, the main bulk of the mission fell on these two guys. Very normal soldiers, to be honest. They're not remarkable in any sense. You know, They're not like super soldiers or superhuman. And uh, I, For me, that's... Uh, why I find it also relatable that they were just sort of normal men thrust into a very abnormal uh, situation. Um, Do we know why they were picked? That's a very good question. I, I think when Czech or Czechoslovakia, as it was known then, became occupied, there was a lot of you know people that just just before it became occupied left, a lot of the soldiers left, and then the the Czech government was in Britain, so I think they got to Britain and I think when we were reading about it in research I think they had they were both you know the guys that made the mission they had certain skills you know and certain temperaments so I think they were chosen for that for that reason but I think it was mostly that they were obviously you know Czech and they could they could go in there and go undercover pretty quickly and as Jamie said they weren't by any standards you know uh, superhuman they were pretty average guys I hadn't seen much action I don't think either of them I don't think They'd never like shot anyone in action, you know, but yeah, that's the reason they just happened to be in England, and so they were trained by the SOE. And maybe that's one of the reasons why. So we see you uh, arriving and setting up the mission, but it's a pretty chaotic mission, isn't it? I mean, this isn't an operation that runs. I don't want to give anything away, but obviously, it's all written down. Um, it's not a smooth operation. Is it's it? certainly not a, a smooth operation, and there was many differing opinions on whether it was the right thing to do within the Czech resistance themselves, um, which there was already a resistance in Czechoslovakia at the time. But this was something else altogether. You know, this is, um, there's one thing standing up to Nazi regime and, you know, trying to do all you can against that. But it's another to then come out and say you're going to assassinate the highest ranking Nazi officer that is within Prague at the time daring and sort of insane in its capacity um so obviously there's a lot of people who who were against it um so their boys were having to fight against that right from the start and are they against it because of the fear of reprisal yeah exactly uh you know that the whole of prague would be torn apart if they succeeded it's a a strange thing of like people fearing the mission succeeding check people fearing that if you succeed with the mission, you managed to kill Heydrich, say you kill him. The reprisals are so huge. So Czech people not even wanting the mission to succeed is kind of a, a very odd situation, you know. And look, the reprisals were uh, huge and horrific and heinous, but you're forced to ask yourself the question of whether it was all worth it. But, you know, I think the plans that Heydrich had for uh, Czechoslovakia, as it was then, 
were far greater than the reprisals. The guys that you play and the civilians that supported them are considered heroes uh, in the Czech Republic. But over here, Killian, a lot of people will come to this story and think, well, I kind of know about Heydrich, but I don't really know this story. It seems amazing that we've... There are so many World War II stories, and we, maybe this still isn't as well known as it should be. Yeah, I mean, I certainly, and I think Jamie as well, we both didn't, weren't aware of it uh, at all. And obviously, it's huge for the Czech people. But, you know, I think that that conflict was so huge in scale. There's still incidents in it and pieces of it that we're still finding out about or that haven't been properly investigated, certainly for the for the average, you know, person who's not a historian, I think. And looking back on it, you realize that this act, the ramifications of it change kind of, well, they change the course of the Second World War, and then they change the course of history as a result. You know, and, and the, you know, I was just thinking as you were talking there, like the, the reprisals, like they destroyed, uh, raised to the ground this town, Lidice, and there was something like 10,000 people massacred as a result of the assassination attempt, as it was at the time. And that was the first time that the world became aware I think of the the real brutality of the Third Reich because there was actually newsreel and news footage about this. So even then, it it was changing, you know, the course of the war. And you film in Prague, and there are uh, Czech producers. I understand on the movie, you must have been made very aware of the importance of getting the historical facts correct on this story. Yeah, very much so, and that was hugely important to Sean from the outset. Anyway. This is the director. Yeah, Sean Ellis, the director, he has been living with this story for sort of 15, 16 years, you know, so he had a very strong idea of, of what he wanted it to be. And also, you know, you're not making a documentary, you're making a movie and it's a piece of entertainment. But when when it's based on something that actually happened, um, I think for some films, they play around with the truth a lot. But Sean really wanted it to be a pretty truthful depiction of, of, of what went on. And obviously, the, the Czech producers involved we're very happy happy for that too. This is a piece of history that obviously shaped their country um, forever and they all know the story inside out and it means so much to them. So there's definitely a, a sort of a unifying you know, agreement that, that we should be sticking close to, to the actual facts, but also it is a, making a movie as well, obviously. Yeah. And you get your story out first because um, HHHH is on the way. In fact, Jason Clark, um, the Australian actor, when he's on the show for Everest a couple of years back, he was excited to talk about Everest, but what he really wanted to talk about was the fact that he was playing Heydrich uh, in HHHH. Which, so this story is going to be, if people, if this is their way into the story, they're going to get another dose of it in, in about a year's time, I think. Yeah, I mean, it happens, doesn't it? And, and it seems to happen in the industry quite a lot. Films come in twos or threes sometimes. And, you know, this story has been, has been made before. It's been made in the 70s, and there was, a, there was a Czech version, obviously, as well. But... You know, how can I say it's good to be out first? <laughs> yeah. yeah, and you got sorry, James. Yeah, no, but I think that, that, that uh, from what I know of H H H H, make sure I get those it's four right. H's. Yeah. Four H's, yeah. Is that it's a slightly different take on it, and it focuses more on Heydrich and and his uh, private life and everything. So um, it, rather than you know centering on the on the operation, so yeah. I think it's a different take. Which and I your film's got good. Toby Jones in it, the great Toby Jones. It does the brilliant Toby Jones, yeah. Putting in another fabulous uh, performance. Mm-hmm. What and how did a couple of Irish actors get on with a Czech accent? So, well, the Czech accent and a Moravian accent. I mean, what were you what were you told about getting that right? Well, Sean had sort of voiced very early on to us that you know 
the accents needed to be quite soft. And they had to differentiate between, you know, Killian Slovakian and my Moravian, uh, which I think is important. But also, you don't want them to be a distraction. You don't want people to be thinking about the accents, you know, post sort of five, six minutes into a movie. And also, they're not, the Czech accent is in its nature when, you know, English spoken Czech is, is, it's softer than, say, Russian, which is quite catchy and and hooky and, and can be quite distracting when you hear um, like British or Irish people do it, I, I feel. So there's something, a softness he wanted to it that I think suited us. Mm. And we had the luxury of having a lot of Czech actors in scenes with us and they were doing you know, Czech accented English and uh, so that was helpful, definitely. Is Slovak tougher than Brummy? Can you? <laughs> <laughs> Remarkably similar. No, um, I don't know. I think every accent, you've got to give it time. You know, you just have to get, just put put the work in, and then just hope for the best. It's kind of fingers crossed. And I like when we did Peaky Blinders. I remember everyone was terrified, but the people of Birmingham accepted it. And I think similarly, when this film premiered in Czech Republic, they gave us the tentative t- thumbs up. There's a lot of teas, teas there. I think we got away with it, you know. And it's more Peaky Blinders. Is there another? Another two more, yeah. Mm. Are you filming that? No, not till next year. You looking forward to that because you obviously love that character so much that, um, and I think you're a producer now in the series. It must be mm. quite exciting to get back into that, uh, back into that period, back into the Shelby hat. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I never thought that you know, certainly like this, what's happened in television. You'd never have expected to be given the gift to play an actor or to play a character for like uh, it, when we do five series that will have been like 30 hours of television it's kind of extraordinary and to be able to develop a character like that particularly you know with such great writing and such great uh, cast so yeah it uh, kind of took me by surprise and I think a lot of people by surprise so I'm very happy that it's doing so well it's what do we see you in next James is it the fall I think uh, yeah um, the, 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 we finished the third series in um, February and it comes out at the end of September so um, yeah and then more Fifty Shades when do we see that that comes out uh, the f- second one comes out Valentine's Day-ish uh, of 2017 and then the third one comes out Valentine's Day-ish You're smiling. of uh, 2018 yeah Valentine's Days are covered if you're that, right? that way inclined <laughs> yeah That's, actually we should mention just before we finish um Killing you just on the subject of World War Two. I mean, I know this is all completely random, but you're working with Christopher Nolan again um, on Dunkirk. Is there anything you can tell us about that? <laughs> um, well, you know, Chris, uh, he doesn't like to give too much away, but you know, p- people. This is a, this is another part of the Second World War that people are familiar with, and it's just going to be. I think it's very interesting to see Chris take on a war film, you know, because I think for me, he's one of the great directors, and mm-hmm. I think. Uh, a lot of the great directors, you look at their filmography and there's always a war film in there. Um, and I think, you know, Chris's philosophy and the way he shoots things, it should be uh, something kind of special. I'm hope, I hope so. One of my favourite moments on doing this show was uh, when Chris Nolan was last on the show for Interstellar. Oh, yeah. And we had to stop because Anne Hathaway was making so much noise in her interview in the room next door. <laughs> and he insisted that we stop. And everyone was saying, no, we're going to be out of sync. We're going to, you know, we're going to have to... 
we have to carry on. And at that moment, there was no doubt who was in charge in the room, and that was Chris Nolan. And he absolutely insisted that we stop until Anne Hathaway finished. And we stopped recording, and we talked about conspiracy theories and no. moon landings and all that kind of stuff. Just an amazing conversation then. And he said, how long is Anne going to be? And they checked. She said, it's going to be about five minutes. So we sat and talked for five minutes. Then when she'd finished laughing, we carried on doing the interview. <laughs> but what an amazing man. He's quite, quite unique, yeah, quite unique. But the films talk for themselves, really. Uh, Killian and Jamie, we appreciate spending some time with you. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's a new feature in the interviews that we're going to do where it's going to always conclude with me telling them a little showbiz anecdote from yeah. the past. And they and will just sort of ex- look at their watches and think, I think we've got to go and talk to Steve right now. So <laughs> so we've got to go. Although that, that, that anecdote is, still isn't as good as that you've just tweeted a picture of the last time that we interviewed Killian Murphy. Yes, which he all... remembered and, and brought up as soon as he came into <laughs> yeah. the room. Tell you tell tell the story. Well, the story was that, that you, you were trying to get him to because we, we'd interviewed him for Inception, and you were trying to get him to say whether he was in um, was it Do- there's uh, a new Batman on Dark Knight Rises. That's right. And you said uh, you said well, there's a new Batman on the way. Uh, are you in it? You know, can you tell us about it? He said no, no, I can't. He said well, can you tell us whether you're in it? And he said no, I can't. And he said well, can you tell us anything about it at all? Like, you know, even whether you're actually in the film. He said look, I can't. I've signed a piece of paper. And he went, which means you're in it. What he remembered. <laughs> What he remembered was we had both given him a really, really hard time. He said, you just wouldn't stop. You just, you just wouldn't stop. Anyway, yeah, despite that, he took that photograph with us. Your pressing him on that was referred to by Den of Geek as a strong line of question, singular, because you just <laughs> asked the same question over and over again. Well, it's a kind of a Paxman versus Michael Howard approach. I'm just going to keep going until I get somewhere. Anyway, uh, I mean, Killian Murphy particularly is, is is striking. I know you haven't seen the movie yet. You're going to see it next week. But yeah. I think he's he's striking in almost everything yes. uh, that he does. Uh, and Peaky Blinders has been such a huge uh, hit on the television. And, and we, we were talking a bit afterwards about how the difference between, you know, when you're filming television and the quality of the writing in television, then you go to a movie and the quality of the writing of the movie and the difference between the two is increasingly blurred anyway. So uh, Anthropoid is the new... What do you think of that as a title, Mark? I think it sounds like a science fiction film, like you said. Yeah. So would you have changed it? It is not the role of a critic to tell filmmakers how to make their films. come on. Anyway, so that comes out uh, next week, and Mark will review it on next week's programme. Meantime, something else that's new that Mark has actually seen. Okay, so let's do Things to Come, which is the new film by Mia Hanson-Love, who made, you know, Father of My Children, Goodbye First Love, Eden. It stars Isabel Huppert. Isabel Huppert uh, plays a philosophy teacher uh, who is married. She has uh, good children who are sort of uh, grown up. Um, When we first meet them, the the film skips over different time periods, and uh, they grow up during the, the course of the film. And essentially, it's a film about somebody whose life is defined by, by their ideas and their thought process and their aspirations, perhaps more than their circumstances. We see her uh, in Paris crossing a picket line in order to get in to uh, teach her students. And then there's a sort of uh, quite friendly domestic arguments about, oh, look at you, you used to be a communist and now you've changed. And she says to her husband, yeah, but you haven't changed since the age of 18. And then what she discovers is that, in fact, uh, whilst uh, politics and philosophy are inconstant and unknowable so indeed is love and at a strange point in her life she finds that the things that she had expected to be constant are no longer constant I loved this film and I loved it for a number of reasons. The first one is that Isabel Huppert's central performance is absolutely brilliant. She is an actor who inhabits a role like no other. It's hard to think of a more commanding screen presence. She is somebody 
who makes every character, whether, I mean, she became famous for playing characters in Extremis, but here what she's doing is underplaying, playing something which is warm and wry, but also has a sense of sadness and tragedy. When you see her on screen, you absolutely believe in that character. The second thing is it's wonderful to see a film about um, a woman whose life is defined by by her profession, by her, by her mind, by her, her ideas, and not defined by domestic circumstances and by trite romantic solutions and by imagining that everybody's life actually should be organised around certain key relationships. What you get is something which is absolutely unapologetically discursive. It talks about radicalism and revolution and philosophy and uh, in a way that is not very popular in mainstream cinema, but is actually done very lightly so that for all the film's discursive qualities um, the director um, used uh, a mother as uh, as a sort of uh, as a role model for all those uh, discursive qualities the film never feels like it's being overly preachy or overly talkative what it feels like is that it's engaging um all the way through the film the central character that she plays natalie is on the move uh, the camera is constantly having to catch up with her even when she's in what looks like a single room setting she will be moving from place to place always constantly on the go and what this creates is a sense of a character who is involved in an arc which is not to do with starting somewhere going through crisis and ending up somewhere but is to do with an ongoing flow of life so in a way what this film does is to take a situation, you know, the the unexpected uh, mid to late life change in circumstances, but not treat it in the way that uh, sort of mainstream saccharine uh, movies would do, but to treat it as your life is changing, the future is changing, the future is unwritten. How do we grasp this? How do we deal with it? Uh, very, very interesting use of song. There's an awful lot of silence in the film and the construction of, of its soundtrack is very specific uh, in its use of song. In terms of the way it looks, it occasionally looks sort of rather loose limbed but actually has much more of a sort of a, an orchestrated visual structure sorry can a, I, what well you know if you, you say something it's sort of loose limbed camera work. Well, yes yeah, so like so the camera is uh, you know it's free and flowing and but not that okay so what's the best way of describing this imagine the Stanley, the, ca the classic Stanley Kubrick shot on a tripod, looking down a corridor, which everything is very geometrical and blah, 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 well, the opposite of that. And yet, actually, what's happening with this film is that it's much more choreographed than at first it would seem. So for me, I thought it was really a really terrific piece of work, a drama about a character that you believe in, with circumstances that seem utterly. Uh, you know, real and tangible and involve you both emotionally and intellectually. Absolutely central to that, Isabel Luper's performance, sensitively and intelligently written and directed. And, and I mean, I, just, I literally just sat there and thought, this is great. This is what I want cinema to be doing. And I really, really liked it. And it's called uh, Things to Come. At Lavenue is the original title, but it's called Things to Come. And do seek it out because it's absolutely terrific. Have we got time to very quickly put a documentary in before two I just want to ask you a, what a, a question, which isn't a trite question, but yeah. might appear to be a trite question. Go ahead. Would this work in a double bill with bad moms? Huh. I'm going to say yes, because I just want everyone to go and see it. So, yes. Fine. I'll give you 60 seconds then on this new documentary. Okay, Jim, the James Foley story, which is a documentary about the American frontline journalist who was uh, captured in Libya, then uh, then re recovered, then went out to conflict in Syria, was captured and uh, executed. This is a film made by his friend Brian Oakes using very, very moving uh, footage with his interviews with family, interviews with friends. 
it's a documentary which is made with a sort of a, a passionate basis, which is that what this uh, freelance journalist was doing was going out into dangerous situations because he believed that these, these situations needed to be seen by the world. And there was a lot of questioning about what happens when you put yourself in danger and absolutely the reason is do you know about these conflicts if you do know about them it's because people like that are out there doing it uh, called jim the james foley story i th found it very very moving very heartfelt very intelligent and an important story uh, so we're here for another hour you can get involved of course via email via text and if you follow us uh, on twitter at wittertainment uh, in the next half hour then um, tell us the movies that are coming up, Mark, please. Uh, we're going to be doing Sausage Party. Sausage we're going Party. to be doing the new Woody Allen film. That's the biggie coming up. Is, is Woody Allen movie bigger than Sausage Party, would you say? <laughs> I think he is. And Morgan, of course. Uh, Jonathan Burford, by the way, wants to compliment you, Mark, for, for complimenting, in turn, the editing of Bad Moms. Oh, right. Uh, in your review. Yes. The editors, says Jonathan, and editing is something that is often overlooked in filmmaking, despite their major influence in the way any film looks and feels. Editors also have major influence in sound design and special effects. And as Mark said, much of the comedy is found in the editing suite. So that's quite interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I... However... Oh, sorry. He then goes on to say, it was particularly gratifying to hear you praise the editing of Bad Moms as my wife, Emma Hickox, edited it. <laughs> <laughs> along with... She was half of the film's editing team, okay. uh, along with James Thomas. This also came in the week that Bad Moms is about to hit $100 million in America, $135 million... $135. ...worldwide. <laughs> and in the week that um, Emma's mother, editor, Anne V. Coates, was awarded the Governor's Award, an honorary Oscar by the Academy. Wow. So a good week... Uh, all in all. So anyway, he's not completely impartial, uh, no. given that his other half is half of the editing uh, team. However, it is worth noting that uh, we note the editors. And, you know, I'd, I'd like to say, as I say so often, if you really want to know about uh, that area of filmmaking, the, 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 the most readable book is the Ralph Rosenblum book, um, When the Shooting Stops, The Cutting Begins, which has got a brilliant section on finding Annie Hall in the morass of a movie that began life as Anhedonia and uh, also a very interesting chapter about the remaking effectively of The Night They Raided Minsky's and how the editors kind of constructed that movie you know after after Friedkin had sort of made it and sort of left it behind so it's 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 fascinating and it does it does definitely teach you that so much more stuff happens in the editing but I think comedy is a particularly good example because comedy editing is a really really complicated thing to get right so how, how lovely to have that email thank you and I'm slightly nervous about this email this next one because it might give uh, some people down my local cinema a few ideas but anyway oh this is from Dr Ellen Wright who's in Leicester uh, every time you discuss cinema-appropriate food, I have to realise that I need to send you this email. My partner, Phil Smith, is a film historian and is currently in the write-up year of his PhD, right. which is on film serials, Flash Gordon and the like, and serial audiences in the early sound era. As part of his research, he's uncovered a raft of 1930s, 40s newspaper articles on atrocious audience behaviour. Uh, uh, and often this was for the, in the serial movies. The inappropriate eating section includes a cinema attendee with a whole roast chicken, cutlery, another anticipated table paraphernalia, and another cinema goer who feasted on a whole lobster. Actually, that's never going to happen down my way. I don't, I don't While such behaviour may be distracting for fellow cinema goers, surely these cinema goers deserve a level of respect for being so audacious and so organised. If you could offer Phil some words of encouragement with his thesis, as I know he's finding it quite hard being so close to the finishing line, but not quite there yet. So come on, Phil. Everyone's having a great time. 
what are you doing yeah and also the fact of the matter is your your thesis your thesis will get finished it's just it's just a thing how it should will... he how, how should he finish it then he should well you know he should just finish it I think that's quite enough encouragement for one person yeah. to take. So it's 10 minutes past three, and uh, you can email mail at bbc.co.uk. Uh, sausage party on the way. But anyway, what's, uh, what are you going to do? Well, let's do sausage party. Is, is now the time? I can't quite believe what I'm hearing about sausage party. Oh, really? What are you hearing? Well, I'm hearing a whole raft of things. I don't want to uh, get in the way of anything you're about to say, but it's okay. all written down here. All right, so uh, sausage party, which is a fantastically sort of crass, vulgar and rude uh, animated feature, which is, um, as Jonathan Ross would, would say, nicht por de kinder. Um, so it's set in a supermarket where the the durables are alive and uh, their great dream is to be chosen by the godlike customers so that they can be taken to the heaven that exists beyond the aisles, beyond the doors of the supermarket. Some renegade uh, durables uh, tell the story that actually all is not rosy on the other side at all. But uh, Seth Rogen's sausage and Kristen Wiig's uh, hot dog bun are desperate to be united. Uh, whilst on the shelves, they reach out their tiny hands to each other uh, in anticipation of their future freedom. Here's a clip. I can't wait anymore. I, 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 I need to just feel you. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? Just, just the, the tips? tips? I can't believe we're doing this. I know. We're so naughty. But, but it's fine, right? I mean, nothing bad's ever happened from just the tips. No. No, 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 no. Yeah, so believe me, that was the playable clip. Um, so what then happens is that a piece of food makes it back from the outside and tells the awful truth that, in fact, the gods are monsters and everything outside is disastrous. So our heroes go on a quest through the aisles to the caves of exotic alcohol where they seek answers and end up finding lots and lots of lavatorial humour and absolutely sort of, you know, low-rent gags. Here's the, the weird thing about it is, is that I went into Sausage Party with, uh, with, with low expectations, not least because... I'm of the generation that remembers things like Jungle Burger. I mean, there was a period in the 1970s when you had Fritz the Cat and Heavy Traffic, which were, were, were kind of quite well respected. But I remember seeing Jungle Burger, which, of course, was actually sort of, you know, it, it was a different film before it became Jungle Burger in the UK. And just thinking this is just depressing and I'm, I'm not finding it funny. And uh, maybe if I saw it again now, I would change my mind. But back at the time, I just thought this is really, really awful. And I kind of went into Sausage Party thinking this is what we're going to get. And actually, um, although I'm not proud to say I laughed, I'm not too proud to say I laughed either. Now, that's not to say that what it is is, you know, in incredibly smart. There are some some jokes that are smarter than others. Actually, that whole thing about uh, the bagel and the lavash bread having this sort of ongoing political argument that then ends up... Up in the most sort of inconceivable orgiastic you know uh finale is sort of quite well worked through but the stuff that works best is the sort of the stoner humor is the 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 the, the raw i mean yes it's yes it's very sweary yes it's very vulgar yes it's very crass yes there are things in it that will make you go oh for heaven's sake really but I was very strict on the laugh count and I did laugh six times and I laughed a little bit more than that. There were some jokes that I laughed at and then actually felt embarrassed at having laughed. And there are other jokes that I laughed at. So I'm not saying for one minute that what it is, is it's good. But what I am saying is that I'm I'm not too proud to admit that it made me laugh. And there are there there is enough. I mean, there is some stuff in it that is so deliberately outrageous that actually it will put some people off. And I understand the thing about, you know, it's too sweary and too crass for its own good. That is probably the case. But bizarrely, 
I did found myself, you know, chuckling and snorting. And at one point doing that really weird thing, which was that I, I laughed at a joke, even as I was ashamed to have laughed at it. So I made that strange choking noise. You know, you go... <clears throat> Which sounds disturbingly like a death rattle, which is how we started the show. Oh, Simon. Karen Siegman uh, says, having just come out of seeing Sausage Party at the gorgeous classic cinema in Elstonwick, Melbourne, I thought I would offer my thoughts. With stereotypes abounding and double entendres flying... flying, Yeah, hardly double entendres, frankly. uh, Sausage Party passes the six-laugh test in the first ten minutes. At heart, this is a film that espouses values of understanding, celebrating our differences... Uh, and religious tolerance, all with a cheeky grin and a little bit of bad language. Be warned, though, if you are, like me, permanently scared by that scene in Team America, World Police, then this may leave you with nightmares. All in good fun, though, but you'll never look at food in the same way. Again. There is a Saving Private Ryan sequence in it as well, which is, wor- which is worth the price of admission. Uh, Patrick Roberts. Uh, doctors, I had the misfortune to have a rush of blood to the head this bank holiday Monday and taking a viewing of Sausage Party. It is truly awful. It is crude, misogynistic and buttock-clenchingly unfunny. I would have described the humour as on a level with the lavatory, except that would be an affront to to the the dignity of lavatories. Um, Leo Odell Johansson. I saw Sausage Party with some friends and had pretty high hopes going in. A raunchy animated comedy offending some people is the description of something I would really enjoy. It was outrageous, hysterical at times, sadly left out the humour in childish humour a bit too often. I liked it, but wanted to like it more than I did. I think, actually, I mean, that's that's a fair assessment. Um, I liked it, but I wanted to like it more than I did. In my case, I liked it enough, which was a lot more than I thought I was going to. OK, so just... A little bit disappointing, but still worth... No, I wasn't disappointed because I had expected to be crushingly disappointed and I actually thought it made me laugh more I than I thought. I wasn't as disappointed as much as I thought I was going to be. Yes, that, that should be on the poster. Yeah. OK, that's very good. OK, so that's Sausage Party. That's uh, that's brand new. What else is out? So let's do Morgan, which is a it's a film which invites, I mean, actively invites comparison with, with Ex Machina, which is always sort of very dangerous because Ex Machina is a really good film. I know you liked it as well. And it's, you know, a really smart, intelligent science fiction movie. And this can't hold a candle to it. This is directed by uh, Luke Scott. And it takes sort of fairly familiar Frankenstein themes, but sort, I mean, handles them in a way that I thought had a certain crowd-pleasing panache. Um, Kate Mara is this sort of steely risk investigator who we see at the beginning of the uh, movie being sent into a situation which has gone badly wrong. She's been sent in to evaluate this uh, sort of titular hybrid, Morgan, played by Anya Taylor-Joy, who was so brilliant uh, in The Witch, um, who is this superhuman bred in a laboratory who has recently attacked one of her keepers. Amongst the uh, the supporting cast is, of course, the always mighty Toby Jones. Here's a clip. Miss Leathers. Pleasure. Yes, absolutely. Why don't you get me up to speed? Yes, uh, please. The creation of synthetic DNA was the relatively simple half of the equation. We knew right away that Morgan was very special. Within a month, walking and talking, it exceeds our wildest expectations. She was exactly what we intended, a hybrid biological organism. I'd like to discuss the incident, if that's okay. What would you like to know? I'm still unclear on the cause. 
There had been some debate on Morgan's time outside. When the excursions with Amy were postponed, she may well have overreacted. It's very unfortunate. But despite these obvious setbacks, this project is heading in the right direction. So you heard from that uh, clip when he says that there was unfortunate stuff and then you heard the screaming in the background. That kind of gives you a sense of it. But what's interesting about the film is that on the on the one hand, it sort of nods thematically towards, you know, Ridley Scott's Blade Runner and Steven Spielberg's AI, although it doesn't have any of the, of the upmarket feel of those films. For all its sort of visual sheen, this does retain a kind of sort of slightly B-movie sense of schlock about it, which I, I, I have no problem with at all. I actually kind of rather like that. It has a very, very solid supporting cast, which includes Jennifer Jason Lee, Paul Giamatti, uh, Toby Jones, all of whom do what I found an enjoyable version of scenery chewing. I mean, basically, they're taking the they're taking the idea of the film and kind of and, and, and running with it. And there's a particular... I mean, Paul Giamatti's performance is particularly ripe. He's the, the uh, sort of the shrink who's sent in to do a psychic evaluation on Morgan and he has a he has a, some really really good scenes in which he's just he's enjoying the dialogue he's enjoying the setup he's enjoying the you know the, the science fiction possibilities of it the problem is that as you're looking at it and as you're thinking of ex machina it, it said it, it genuinely isn't that full because ex machina is managing to do all of those things in a in a much more sort of accomplished and deft and and also sort of uh sort of deceptive way i mean the thing that i really liked about ex machina was although i think it did have that exploitation edge to it you were never quite sure where it was going with this you have a lot more sense of where it's going even as the plot does certain twists and flips which you know i i was quite happy to have anticipated that just meant to me that they were sort of hardwired into the the dna of it but i think it was an enjoyable sci-fi pot boiler taking that sort of you know frankenstein idea and doing it again not as well as some of the great movies which it refers to but actually in a way which which i found perfectly perfectly functional and perfectly enjoyable and i was never bored there was. I was thinking while you were talking about uh, Toby Jones there making another appearance uh, on the show. We were making a reference to him uh, earlier with Anthropoid, yeah, uh, as well. There was a period. I was, you know, the wonderful Pete Postlethwaite, who was yes. uh, so lauded and, and was so wonderful in so many films. But in a way, Toby's become like the new Pete Postlethwaite. He's just in. He's always beguiling and always extraordinary. Always puts in a completely different performance, and he's. Clearly, film directors want him to be in absolutely everything because he always delivers. I think there is something about Toby Jones on your credit, which just means, oh, OK, fine. Oh, yeah. OK, they're serious about this. I mean, I, I, I could I could watch him in anything because to me, he's he's genuinely mercurial. He's different in everything, but he all he never gives less than 100 percent. And you know that if he's there on screen, he's going to bring some interest. But I said this is actually, you know, a pretty accomplished um, supporting cast. I mean, very, you know, very solidly supporting the drama and all. Uh, giving, you know, for my opinion, so very, you know, very good space for Annie Taylor Joy to, to work as that central character, and so I, I you know, I enjoyed it. I, th- I thought it was fun. I think it's flawed. I think it's, you know, slightly flimsy, and certainly reminds you of films which are, which are of a higher level. But I did enjoy it whilst I was watching it, and as I, and I genuinely mean it. I say I was never bored, which is good for a science fiction movie which is dealing with those ideas again. Uh, when you get, when you see Anthropoid this week, by the way, this coming week, yes, um, when Toby Jones appears on screen, you m- try not to think, "Oh, Captain Mannering's on holiday." Okay, try not <laughs> because it's 
it's not it's just not a helpful uh, thing to be thinking. Uh, Amara Santi is going to be with us after the three uh, thirty news and sport. What else do you want to do? Uh, we're going to do Cafe Society. The Woody Allen film can do that. That's a rhetorical question, as you know. Okay, so new Woody Allen film, and there's always this thing with Woody Allen. You know, is it one of the good ones, one of the bad ones? Is it a return to form? Is it a fall from form? And the last couple of films, Irrational Man, I wasn't fond of at all. Um, Magic in the Moonlight, I thought was kind of okay. This is at a sort of higher level than that. It's uh, set in old Hollywood and vintage New York, 1930s uh, tale. Uh, Jesse Eisenberg is the sort of the Woody Allen standard. Do you remember? when when uh, Bullets Over Broadway came out and you went to see it and you said afterwards John Cusack is basically playing Woody Allen in mm-hmm. that film remember that okay fine well <laughs> Jesse Good Eisenberg film. yes and Jesse Eisenberg is playing Woody Allen even more than uh, John Cusack was so he is the sort of slightly dorky guy from uh, the east coast who goes out to the west to get a job with his uncle Phil uh, played by Steve Carell who is this uh, Hollywood big shot and whilst he's out there he needs to be shown around. He's that classic, you know, Woody Allen character out of place in L.A. He says, yes, it, you know, it's sunny, but I don't know my way around. You know, what's, what, what is there to love? So he is told that uh, this assistant is going to take him around, played by uh, Kristen Stewart. Next thing you know, he becomes completely infatuated by her, of course, and moves to kiss her. Here's a clip. Uh, I don't think that's a very good idea, actually. No? I'm seeing someone. Oh. it what? What's he like? Doug is a journalist. Oh. I just thought since you had so much free time on your hands. He travels a lot. And I really like spending my time with you. I hope that's okay. You know, you're very sweet. Have you heard that before? You have this deer in the headlights quality. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Well, if I was your boyfriend, I would not travel. Or if I did, I would take you with me. I hope he knows how to kiss you and all the rest. It's between us. So they go to see Barbara Stanwyck pictures. They have, you know, this sort of putative uh, romance. But it turns out, of course, you know, she has a boyfriend and uh, the boyfriend, it turns out to be a married man. And one thing leads to another. In the end, uh, the story divides itself between the East Coast and the West Coast. And uh, there are two women involved in it, both of whom are conveniently called Veronica. The other one played by uh, Blake Lively, who comes to embody what his aspirations are in a much more sort of material way. So the interesting thing about the film is that it, in many ways, it, as you know, Woody Allen films often do, it revisits themes with which we're kind of familiar. I mean, there are some scenes in it that could have been taken in terms of their script directly out of uh, Annie Hall. The discussions about, you know, what's wrong with L.A. is very much like that. You know, why would I want to move anywhere with the only cultural advantage that you can turn right on a stop sign? There is one sequence in which he's trying to persuade somebody to leave California to come back to New York. And he's talking about Greenwich Village. And it, I mean, it, it, that is absolutely an Annie Hall outtake there are hints of crimes and misdemeanors in this underlying subplot about his gangster brother and you know the morality of crime there's all those sort of the the lines that you would expect like the unexamined life is worth living but the examined life is no bargain actually what makes it work is firstly it looks beautiful Victoria Storaro shot it and finds unexpected beauty particularly in the in in the California locations which of course is something that which traditionally you think of 
Alan only really finding that beauty in the Manhattan locations. The, the the club interiors in which we are just sort of swathed with this art deco uh, designs are, you know, lush. It's a very, very visually sumptuous and rich film, and it is a treat to look at. There are certain things in it which are clunky. Uh, Alan's narration, I thought, dragged rather and... Although, you know, that thing about doing a narration is something which we're very familiar with with Woody Allen films, it did here feel like it was heavy on the narration and I could have lived without that. Um, but it it passed the time perfectly well. I did enjoy... It's got to do better than that. No, 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 no. Just passed the no, no. time. Yeah, but hang on, hang on, let me finish. It passed the time perfectly well and I enjoyed it as a piece of filmmaking and I thought visually it was really rich and Steve Carell gives a very, very good performance. I don't think it's classic Woody Allen... Um, but then, you know, when you've made as many movies as he has, the fact of the matter is they're not all going to be Annie Hall. They're not all going to be Manhattan. Um, it's so it's one of the better ones. It's one of the better later period ones. And I mean, it's not Blue Jasmine, um, but neither is it. Neither is it Irrational Man. It's kind of mid range, late period Woody Allen boosted by some absolutely sumptuous visuals, which give the film a sense of richness that perhaps otherwise it wouldn't have had. So that movie is... Uh, that's called Cafe Society. All right. Uh, Mark is in Shetland and a special guest has arrived. Yes, we are very pleased to say that we're joined by uh, Amra Santi of this parish. Of course, Amra has come up here to uh, the Shetland Screenplay Film Festival to introduce Belle. You're just gearing up to going to the London Film Festival where you're opening the LFF with uh, United Kingdom. That's right. Welcome to Shetland. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's an exciting time at the moment. Busy and exciting. And you just had the LFF launch two days ago? Yesterday. Yesterday uh, morning we had uh, the wonderful launch for the 60th, I believe. I can't believe it. Uh, but it was huge and um, it unveiled uh, what looks like a great programme of films so it is, it's it's exciting and I'm I'm happy to be headlining And Simon of course is stuck down in London because we can never manage to drag him up to Shetland Got other things to do, All right, Emma We miss you Simon Well I was thinking of you actually just yesterday because I went to see Bridget Jones' Baby and without giving anything away there's a lot of Kenwood in there which Ah. is uh, the bit in North London where you did a lot of filming for, in fact where it's set isn't it? Yeah absolutely Well we, 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 we sort of cheated a bit to be honest because Kenwood was being refurbished at the time so we used six houses around London uh, which were very similar um, and we tied them together to make up our Kenwood house but yes Kenwood is where it was truly set where the real events the historical events actually took place and you know we love that film very much on this I mean not as much as you loved it obviously. No, but I love you for loving it but let me tell it, you you know we talked about it absolutely loads and you came on the show with Tom Wilkinson and so on and yeah. and, I, and, and anyone who's been on social media recently will know I think I think it's turned up on it's now on Netflix, isn't it? It so, is. And so all of it, this, it it's is. found a whole new audience, either people watching it a second time or people who'd never seen it the first time and are now realising what an extraordinary story you managed to get hold of. Oh, it's such a blessing as well. It's It, it keeps renewing itself. You know, every time I, I come across another set of people that have seen it, I kind of re-see it again through their eyes and there's something just really gratifying and satisfying about that. Well, the lovely thing about tonight is that we're going to show it on the big screen and I think it is great that people are seeing it through Netflix and through the small screen, but I, it is a film that needs to be 
seem projected as well, but not least because it's designed so well. I mean, it's you know, it is a, it's a, the art direction of that film is absolutely beautiful. Yes, it, absolutely. And I think you've reteamed with your art director for United Kingdom. Yeah, right? so Simon Bowles did a wonderful, wonderful job um, in uh, production designing that film. Um, we got together again, went off to Botswana together um, for a United Kingdom, which is set both in Botswana and the UK. So we got to create 1940s London yeah. and 1940s Botswana, which was uh, fabulous and uh, and it's lush and, and gorgeous once again. Well, when you were doing the Well Done You judging for us, you were out, you were in the middle of shooting the film, in fact, when you two... You... We were, we, so we had been wrecking out there um, in Botswana. I was, I was gearing up for how hot it was going to be and what it was going to be like, but I, of course, you can't prepare for it. I had no idea. So at the time that, uh, yeah, that I came and met you guys and sat and chatted with you again... I was sort of thinking, well, I hope it happened, but at the stage we were at, anything could have happened. You know, films often do collapse mm. at that stage. So I was, I, I sort of got a taste of it and was yeah. keeping my fingers crossed. That we it was we made go it happen. Well. We, we organised it. It was yeah, your luck. It was us. It, it, was, it, it was. In fact, it was Simon that it did was. it. So, yeah, we should have some kind of credit in there somehow. I think. Yeah, I think yeah. you might have. To be honest, <laughs> if and for everyone who can't be at your introduction of Bell tonight, yes, um, but they might just be planning to watching it because they're going to stream it into their house. Which yeah. They, which What's the kind of thing you will be saying tonight, just so that we can have our own kind of private introduction? Oh. What's the sort of stuff you'll be talking about? Well, you know, for me, it's it's a really interesting story that is um, very specifically about a young woman who's living in a family that love her, uh, but ha- where she can't really find a sort of reflection of herself because she's adopted um and uh, for me although it's very specifically Belle's story it's a universal story of a, a young woman kind of trying to find her identity and her place in life um it's set in the 18th century um I was told by absolutely everybody it was only going to be a woman's film only to find that <laughs> lots and lots and lots of men love it so it's a film for everybody really um and that doesn't mean it's sort of wishy-washy and generic it's it's very specific but it it, it does have a unique quality that speaks to universal val- uh, values as well okay and, and when do we all get to see, when when does united kingdom have a release when can we then talk about when can we review that no. when can we talk about it well london film festival it will open the london film festival on october the 5th and, and that's then a it, really big deal isn't it opening the lff huge. is a really big deal that's a really huge deal i did a speech for the um for the press launch yesterday and had to had to hold back the tears slightly um as i talked about it um but then it will be in cinemas from the 25th of november you will be able to see okay. it in the uk from the 25th explain why it's a big deal it's a big deal for lots of reasons really I had my first film world premiere there um, 12 years ago um, I, I, I describe it as sort of um, originally before I made films sort of standing outside looking into a world that I wished I could be part of um, having my first film there felt like a door had been opened and I could just sort of step in and look inside and I felt like baby in um, Dirty Dancing going into that, <laughs> that underground dance world <laughs> and looking in from the sidelines and thinking wow and, and, and the best way to describe it now is I feel like I can finally say I'm sort of at the centre of that world and I'm looking around and I'm still in just as much awe, but I'm very much a part of it now. And so it's a, it's it's my hometown. It's it's a it's a, a city that I love. It's the premier festival. Um, I I get to be able to um, unveil the film um, in, in London first and foremost in the UK, and that and that's very exciting. And um, you know, not that many women have opened the festival. Um, I think I might be the first person of Afro-Caribbean um, descent to be opening the festival. So that's a sort of first as well. And it, it just shows how far we've come and that we are turning a corner. 
now, I think you're going to help us out on Tuesday. Well, congratulations and all that, by the way. And looking forward to seeing Thank the film you. very much. And then we can, well, once we've all seen it, we can uh, <laughs> tell us talk what you, you think. And David Yellowo and, get, and uh, Rosamund Pike will look forward to all that very much yes. when, when the whole hullabaloo starts. Great. TV movie of the week is what we always pick around mm. about this time. So uh, listeners have chosen theirs. Mark is going to choose, but you're going to choose it as well. No, no, I'm not, I'm not choosing it at all. It's basically a Tamar. We've, we've, oh. we've, we've said, we said Amber no. is doing TV movie. Oh, I mean, I will choose one if you absolutely insist. Oh, but, I think so, you, but, might, you might have to help me okay. out. All right. So the long, here's the long list. So The Princess okay. Bride, Wreck-It Ralph, Avengers Assemble, Bram Stoker's Dracula, Seven Psychopaths, Hugo, Moonrise Kingdom, Wolf of Wall Street, Donnie Darko, Insomnia, Best Exotic Marigold Hotel and The Railway Man. According to listeners, Jez Garrett says, Cracking week for films has to be Wes Anderson's finest film, Moonrise Kingdom, for me. Mm-hmm. The teenage leads in it are both superb. I also have a sneaking suspicion Mark will pick this as it's one of those films more people need to watch and enjoy. Lauren Rose says, Mark will choose The Princess Bride. Great <laughs> film, but Wreck-It Ralph just pips it for me. Uh, hey, what, Wreck-It Ralph is better than Princess Bride? Yes. <laughs> Goodyon Helgeson says, I do believe Mark will pick Princess Bride. I will do that as well here in Iceland, as by great fortune, we also have it airing here on our national broadcaster, RUV, on Saturday evening at 21.50. So for listeners in Iceland, and I can see from the iWitter app, by which we all make an absolute fortune, that we do have listeners in Iceland, so uh, Goodion's going to be watching that. John Gillifan says, it should be Princess Bride. I suspect the selection might be Insomnia. And the last decent Pacino performance with a Robin Williams Hillary Swank combo into the bargain. But Mark is a bit of a Wes Anderson fan too. Uh, Peter Cooper, Princess Bride is a terrible film, boring and unfunny, but Mark will pick it. And um, I'm sorry, that's and and you know what? I'm, I'm just I'm just I'm I'm just containing my my fury. It's somebody uh, saying that Princess Bride is a bad film. John Quigley, I'll go for Bram Stoker's Dracula because it's the first adaptation that really captures the novel for me. Although nobody beats Hammer in terms of camp, and even with Keanu Nunu's English accent, <laughs> it's still enjoyable. Mark will go for Princess Bride. So first of all, we're going to go for Mark's choice, and then we're going to go for Hammer's choice. So Mark, what is our movie of the week? Well, it's changed during the course of that. I was going to go for, for Moonrise Kingdom, but now okay. because first. Firstly, somebody said Princess Bride isn't great. Somebody else said Wreck-It Ralph is better than Princess Bride. But most importantly, because this will also make it the TV movie of the week in Iceland, which I think is a first, we're yes. going for Princess Bride. My name is Inego Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Prin- Princess Bride is on when, Mark? Uh, Princess Bride is on Saturday on a station called Five Star. They were a band. <laughs> Uh, and when and one of them left, they became four-star. 12.35pm, that's on, if you've got your five-star yeah. thing there. Amara Santi, what would be your TV movie of the I, week? I am going to pick one that nobody has mentioned, so I don't know how popular I'm going to be today, and I'm dreading Twitter after this. But I'm going to go for the best ma- exotic Marigold Hotel, and I am going for that for reasons of pure loyalty, because it uh, features Tom Wilkinson and Penelope Walton, I believe, um, and the, both of those two people are in Bell. Wonderful actors, um, wonderful friends, and um, I think it's a great film. So that is on. Shall I tell you? Yes, go ahead. That is on at 9pm on Sunday um, on Film 4, and I can't think of a better Sunday evening Excellent. movie. Uh, Emma, thank you very much, Dee, just for popping in. We appreciate talking to you at any time. Thank uh, look, you. And I hope it goes very well for you in Shetland tonight. And thank you so uh, I'm sure we'll get some social media reports on that, but particularly looking forward to seeing United Kingdom. Thank you. Amma, thanks very much indeed. Amma Asante, uh, five lives, 12 minutes to four. Uh, an email from Catherine Young here. 
uh, a long-term listener, devotee of the church. I'm sure you're aware this is back-to-school week for some. Yes. Where parents rejoice as they send their offspring out of the door in shiny new shoes and immaculately pressed uniforms, full of enthusiasm for the school year. This year will, act, <laughs> will hold a special place in my heart because I am going to be going with them says Catherine. I've recently finished my teaching qualification, which was pretty tough as a mature student, soon to no longer being able to tick the 30 to 39 age box on forms. And next week I start my first job as a class teacher in year six. During my teacher training year, I've been able to use film as a great way to discuss important issues with children. Inside Out was fabulous for uh, PSHE, which, as you know, is personal, social and health education. And some of the well-done new films have been brilliant for discussions on friendship and feelings, which, oh, of fantastic. course, Emma was, uh, was a judge for. Yeah, yeah. The children's accounts of just what Bob the Beatle was doing on his journey were <laughs> wonderful. Are those movies still up there? You must, if you haven't seen Bob the Beatle, what a delight that movie was. It's absolutely brilliant, isn't it? Absolutely brilliant. It's part of the Wittertainment page on the Five Live website. I've had little time for anything else in such a busy year, but your podcast has been one of my few pleasures that got me through. This week it all becomes real. It would mean the world to me if you could formalise the occasion by inducting me into Teacher's Transept of the Church of Wittertainment and wish me a happy first day of school, which we do to all teachers and all students, uh, whether they've already started or whether they're about to start. My first job, says Catherine, is to set up a film club. Sorry I couldn't make the cruise. I was making my classroom look amazing. Uh, so, Catherine, and all no, teachers... You, you, you're making your classroom look dead amaze. Dead amaze and totes Dead amaze. So, uh, you've got ten minutes. What else are you going to tell us about, Mark? Shall we do A Ninth Life of uh, Louis Drax, which is an adaptation of a novel by Liz Jensen, uh, screenwritten by Max Minghella, uh, who's also an actor, uh, directed by uh, Alexander Ayer, who's best known for Switchblade Romance and the uh, Hills Have Eyes remake. So he's best known as working in the horror genre. This is something of a gear change. Because it's a sort of fantastical adventure with slightly sort of quasi-supernatural overtones. So the story is uh, Aidan Longworth is Louis, the the, uh, the titular Louis, who is an accident-prone child who is rapidly using up all of his nine lives. It's like the thing where you know, a cat has nine lives and you've used eight of yours. When we first meet him, he's falling from a cliff, a fall which apparently uh, kills him, but actually from which miraculously he turns out to be in a coma. Here's a clip. Mrs. Drax? Yes? I'm Dr. Pascal. I'm a specialist in pediatric coma. I'll be looking after Louis once he's finished his treatment with Dr. Yannick. You know, I, uh, I must congratulate you. Congratulate? No, we're not supposed to use the word miracle in the medical profession, but this might call for an exception. Well, you don't know my son. That's very true. However, I look forward to changing that. That's the voice of Sarah Gadden and Jamie Dornan. Um, so they've loads of. Oh, he's got, got he's got another movie out. He is, yeah. They're just absolutely packed. It, I think our show is the gateway to such great things. Anyway, so uh, what then happens is that we hear, as the sort of narratorial voice, we hear Louis's voice narrating his story in flashback. We see his violent birth, his multiple brushes with, uh, you know, with with danger and death, his encounters with a psychiatrist uh, played by uh, Oliver Platt, who is uh, enlisted to kind of get inside his mind and find out you know, whether or not these accidents that keep happening to him are happening because he's self-harming, that somehow he's doing this because he's sort of drawing attention to himself. It's something that he needs. And we also learn of his fraught relationship with his father, who's played by Aaron Paul, again, a very, very strong supporting cast. Molly Parker is the detective investigating the case, who is suspicious of everything, not least 
Jamie Dorn's doctor's relationship um, with uh, Louis's mum. Now, the thing about the film is it's a genuinely odd piece of work. Um, and I like that about it because I like the fact that I, I wasn't immediately able to get a handle on exactly tonally where it was going. It has fantastical elements. It has uh, apparitions that appear to be monstrous. There is a, a very sort of strong flavour of Guillermo del Toro. And, you know, the, the whole sort of fabulous thing about Pan's Labyrinth in which you have the story that's happening in the in the the world above ground and you have the story that's happening in the underworld. I stopped myself there from saying the real world and the imagined world because, of course, as Guillermo always says, those two things are actually two sides of the same coin. And, uh, and you have that fabulous sense going on through the film. You also have, bizarrely, in the kind of thriller narrative that starts to... Um, play out as the narrative unfolds you get hints of and it sounds like a bizarre comparison you get hints of William Peter Blatty's Legion which of course you know ended up being uh, coming out as the ninth configuration in which there's been stuff recently about the fact that they're trying to construct a, a director's cut of that for, uh, for, for Blu-ray release. Legion which is a film which is set in a hospital and which is a story about uh, the sort of transfer of thoughts between people within a hospital. There are, there are sequences in this that seem to me to be directly referring to that. I mean, you know, it's, it, that may just be me because as we all know, I obsess about the exorcism, particularly the exorcism three more than perhaps I should do. But what I liked about it, yeah, I think what I liked about it, therefore, was the sense that it was telling a story, but I wasn't entirely sure where that story was going to go. It's to do with unpicking the psyche of all the different characters. The plot has, you know, twists and turns, which, again, if you follow the clues, you can, you know, you can see where it's going. But when it makes those twists and turns, it does them in a rather nice, rather efficient way. And I was surprised to find myself as swept along by it as I was. I, I Certainly at the beginning, I just didn't know what to expect. I didn't know where the film was going. The, the you know, pre-release material hadn't prepared me for exactly what kind of story it was. And I had certain expectations about Alexandra Ayer, who does, of course, bring, uh, you know, a semi-Gothic sensibility to it. But I thought it had... It had that sense of a fabulous story that the more the more it played out, and despite the fact that there are certain things about the narrative that don't quite aren't that are perhaps too neat for their own good, um, I enjoyed it. I thought it it weaved a, a very odd, very strange spell. Not least because of the fact that tonally it was it was very peculiar, and I loved that. I liked the fact that it could never quite get a handle on what the tone, whether it was tragic or comic or fabulous or realist, it was managing to be all those things at the same time. And all those generally, things, I just want to make a list here. So I've already got a semi-Gothic sensibility. Which semi-Gothic people, sensibility. Was it Fa- fantasist? Was it, was it fabulous, fabulous, realist? Yes. Um, what else did I say? Um, Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy. All um, of those. Uh, La La Tinky and Knowing Poe. you. That's right. Right. <laughs> yes, Dipsy Wipsy, Tinky. No, what were they called? The, the Tinky Winky, Dipsy Lala, and indeed Poe. Yes, yeah. and uh, the bananas in pyjamas are coming pajamas, down the yeah. stairs. Okay. Great. And the so anyway, it's called the Ninth Live of uh, Louis Drax. Um, and uh, bro- uh, Brotherhood. Yeah, we've got time for Brotherhood, I think, because uh, a lot of posters about that. Noel Clark's come on the show many times. What yeah, are you so, tell us about this? so this is the third of Noel Clark's Hood trilogy. The first one, Kid Hood, he he wrote and then he co-starred. It was directed by Menash Hood, and then of course he wrote and directed and starred in Adulthood. Now we get the the third film, which is Brotherhood. He returns as. Uh, 
ex-con Sam Clark, who's older and potentially wiser than before, now attempting to go straight, living with his partner and kids, but finding that his violent past won't let him go. At the very, very beginning, we have a shooting which sends a warning signal that Sam is being dragged back into the life of Yor, which also involves some of his friends and colleagues who are similarly attempting to move on with their lives. Here's a clip. Who was that? Uh, just them. Just rang me to tell me about this 1am 90% off sale at Trumpet and Horn Music Shop. Wants me to go down there and collect some stuff up for the band. Isn't he moving to America, though? Yeah, but he'll be back. I don't know, what about me? Maybe I want to go solo. And how can I miss the bargain of 90% off a trumpet, babe? You don't play trumpet. Maybe I want to learn. Are you lying to me? Babe, come on, my little blackberry. Come here. Listen, I'm going to go check out this bargain quickly, all right? You carry on watching the show. I'm not going to be long. Let me know what the bungalow's saying. I'll be back as soon as possible, all right, babe? You look nice and pretty. Just stay there. See, the interesting thing about Noel is he is a kind of one-man film industry, and he's, in terms of the work that he's done, it has gone across many different genres. I still think that his best script was for Fast Girls, which I, I really, really loved. He's also done, you know, 4321 and The Anomaly, and he's, you know, talked about making romantic comedies, but he's also talked, you know, very frankly about that there are things that he wants to do and things that he's expected to do, and he once used this phrase about every now and then returning to what he called the hoodie pot, and to some extent that's what's happening here. He's making a movie which has a built-in audience, and he knows what the demands of that audience will be. And it, Watching it, sometimes I was thinking of that, you know, that Roger Corman analogy, which is if you're going to make this kind of film, there are certain things there have to be and in Roger Corman's thing it was it has to be a certain length has to have an exploding helicopter and a scene in the strip club in the case of this it means unfortunately I think that you you get way too much gratuitous female nudity and there is a fair degree of gangster cliche which is used in the drama however there is more to it than that because the most interesting thing about the film is it's kind of musing quality on somebody attempting to move on from their past attempting to put their past not just their past life but their past identity behind them it's asking what happens when a bad boy grows up whether it's ever possible to go beyond certain you know certain acts that will haunt you for the rest of your life i think he has a very confident directorial air as i said i understand that he's working within a genre with this which which puts which has certain demands which he is fulfilling and those are the bits of the film that i'm least interested in the bits of the film i'm most interested in are when he is doing that for my money more mature more investigative sense of a character who is attempting to put their past behind them when you step out of the studios of bbc yeah. radio shetland which you're about to do yeah what is your first requirement what are you going to be doing I'm going to go straight down to uh, Mareel to do uh, to, to, to 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 get back to the film festival. And what is the first thing that you're going to see? Uh, Amorous Santi. Oh, I'm, no, there's Made in Shetland shorts. There's an entire Excellent. evening of Made in Shetland shorts. Thank you. I just thought I'd make you uh, thank you uh, mention that. This has been a something else thank production so for BBC Radio Five Live. What is our movie of the week, please? Well, it's Things to Come with Isabel Huppert. Thought it might be. 
So just before we leave the subject of brotherhood, I was going to include yeah. this uh, on the show, but here it is as a podcast. Yeah, that's why. I, that's, what, that's why I, I knew. I knew there was an email, and that's why I stopped like a minute before because I thought Simon's going to read an email, and then you. Well, it was forty-five me. seconds. Before yeah, I, I need fifteen seconds. To I know. I know. Mention next week. So anyway, yeah. I thought yeah. I'd let this breathe. No, you're being super professional, Jake in Hackney. I managed to catch Brotherhood last night and I went in truly urging it to be great, which is always a mistake. I left the screening a huge supporter of the message and of Noel Clarke's acting, but sadly not much else. Firstly, I'm confused as to what sort of movie it was. Is it a gritty gangster movie? Is it a silly, light-hearted comedy? It tries to be both and unfortunately ends up being neither. Apart from its tonal difficulties... There are a number of plot lines which lead absolutely nowhere, leaving you confused as to why they even bothered mentioning them. But the main problem was the heavy-handed nature of the key messages that Noel is trying to get across. The theme of getting older, learning from your mistakes and leaving your past behind isn't just served up for you on a plate. It's making choo-choo noises as it's spooned towards your mouth. Keep up the good work, boys. Uh, Jake and Hackney. Can I just say that that's a a very good phrase? Making choo-choo noises as it's it's been... Channeled towards your mouth. The thing is, I when I was doing some uh, some work ahead of the Killian Murphy interview, yeah, Killian has always said in, and he said it over and over again in a whole bunch of movies that he's that he's made. He would far rather, in fact, he doesn't really like movies that tell you what to think. He loves that idea, which we've discussed many times on the program. Yeah. That you know, if you want to take a message from a movie, then fine. If you just want to find a movie blissfully entertaining, then that's also fine. But the movie should leave it up to you rather than to sort of write in large letters what you should think. And it sounds as though that might be what Jake's issue is with Brotherhood. Uh, it's. I think that is what his issue is with Brotherhood. I mean, I think that what's happening in the case of Brotherhood is that it's a film that's being pulled in different directions by different by different requirements of the market that it's playing to. My sense is, and I may be completely wrong about this, my sense is there's a story that, that Noel Clark is interested in telling, and there's the story that the movie requires in order for it to, you know, to to to, to say. And I've and I've I've cited this so many times before. That that is the Roger Corman philosophy. Um, oh, actually, I mean Roger Corman's like living. Roger Corman was a producer, and so Roger Corman's thought was always: you get you get a director who wants to be a French art house director, and you make them make Carnosaur, um, which is slightly different. But I, the stuff that I liked in Brotherhood was the stuff in which I felt that what Noel was doing was was the story that he wanted to tell and I and, and it actually it doesn't bother me if that is uh, if that is ladled on because I think that what it's doing is it's fighting against the other elements in the film which which I'm less interested in and some of which I actually have a you know an active problem with what was wrong with Carnosaur? <sighs> The short version of what was... Well, Carnosaur is a very interesting case. Carnosaur was a fl- Okay, very briefly. So Carnosaur was a film that was made about a dinosaur. And uh, the guy who made it, uh, the director, um, said that they said to... Roger Corman's uh, organisation said, you can have half a million dollars to make this. And they said, well, but yeah, but it's a dinosaur movie. How are we going to make a dinosaur movie with half a million dollars? And Corman said, that's what you've got, half a million dollars. That's what it's going to cost. So he went away and he made the movie. And he made the entire movie, but with no dinosaur in it at all. And then he finished the rough cut of it and he showed it to him and and said, where's the dinosaur? And the director went, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Okay, that's good. Now, here's a thing from uh, Jeremy Collins. Greetings from across the pond. I'm a long-term listener, first-time emailer, native of Leeds, living the dream in Palo Alto. I couldn't help being outraged by the misfortune of the poor woman. This is a reference to last week's programme whose epidural fell out. Do you remember this? Yes, I do. Ten hours prior to delivering her baby. As an anaesthesiologist and putter-in of said form of pain relief, I'd love to know why it wasn't put back. 
Did she not wish to make too much of a fuss? Unless she popped out mid-labour to watch her film and didn't wish to break the code, I can't think of a single reason why she should be left with your soothing banter as a substitute. Whilst I do acknowledge the life-saving, coma-reversing properties of your programme, overcoming the pain of childbirth seems a bit of a stretch, if you'll excuse the expression, (laughs) says Jeremy. (laughs) Talking of something else that caused great pain to myself... Now, and hold yourself back on this, Mark. Go ahead. I'd like to take the opportunity of berating Mark for the Why? 90 minutes and time it took to find it of my life. That I'll never get back for watching the repeatedly commended movie Jeremy, which I thought was utter pants. No! Si- si- no, 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 Shush. no, no. Simon, you have been warned, step away from the VCR. It was one of those pitiful watching experiences where you keep telling yourself to invest in the weight, keep reminding yourself that Mark mentions this every other week in rotation with The Exorcist as the best film on the planet and wait for it to start getting good. And then it finished. Boring, more boring and terrible music to boot. Never since Farewell My Concubine have I scratched my head so hard wondering what all the fuss is about. Sorry for the anti-Comodian rant. He hasn't had one for a while, so I thought I'd step up. But never mind, at least I agree with almost everything else that you both recommend. And if you could say hi to my best friend, Jonathan, in Manchester, who introduced me to the podcast. I'm not going to do that now. And the love of my life, Leslie. I'm not going to do that either. OK. Because Just I'm... included to, for the sake to, of balance. I'm now going to make you feel better. What's that phrase that in that song, you know, the Morrissey song? Beware, I hold more grudges than lonely high court judges. Right. You'll now enjoy... You won't enjoy... You didn't enjoy that, but you will enjoy this. OK. Uh, some correspondence I didn't have time for. Gentlemen, I saw Julieta last Monday. I oh, can, yes. I consider it a masterpiece. Brilliant. Almodovar at his best. The subtitles for me were irrelevant as the film spoke for, it, spoke for itself. Simon, who's the director? Eh? Did you say who, who was at his best? Almodovar. God bless you. Why? Because you got it right. And? Well, because everyone says Almodovar. No, no, no. Well, I just like to, you know what I'm like with yeah. getting foreign languages spot on. Yeah, well, um, but well, yes, I'm sorry. I'm just, yeah, cool. Thank you. Um, the Almodovar is the, you know, but, but fine. Okay. This is either Ali Haider or Haider Ali. It's not clear from the email. But anyway, Julieta has touched me unlike any movie this year. The idea of silence as a double-edged sword is presented as it drives away and brings together characters in equal measure. This is compounded with a Hitchcockian exploration of the viral quality of guilt, hopelessness of depression and mania of obsession, delivering an edge-of-your-seat drama that packs an unbelievable emotional punch. Great performances, great cinematography, great soundtrack. Juliet has pipped the neon demon as my favourite movie of the year. Wow. Well, that's fantastic. I, well, I went um, to uh, a cinema to see, uh, to see Lights Out with uh, Dave Norris. And who should I bump into outside the, the cinema but the legend is Tamsin Greg, who, of course, immediately said... Have you seen the Almodovar? And she said it in that way because she's worked with him. There you go. So I got it right, even though I haven't. Yeah, I um, know. But just, now, in so many ways, you have. And just one more on Julieta, because this is this is slightly off-putting. So okay. here is someone who has overcome enormous hardship to enjoy this movie. And this person is Steve Clark. What a wonderful film Julieta is. Totally immersive and beguiling and emotional and sleep-depriving as I think of the fact that my seven-year-old daughter has so many complexities ahead that I cannot save her from. It is also has the best deer-based scene in movie history, beating The Prophet, The Deer Hunter and countless Santa movies. Strangely, there was a potential code violation, except it's not because there is currently no legislation for it in your code, it's because of bugs. 
B-U-G-S. Bugs crawling in the light and over the lens of the projector. What? So, in one very fraught scene, the drama was accentuated by the shadow of a giant bug about to eat her salty, tear-strewn face. In a lovemaking moment, another bug giant seemed to be bouncing up and down as they bounced up and down. They made their presence felt throughout most of the film. But the poignancy of Julietta won the day despite the giant bugs. Now, I would think almost any movie is just going to, you know, you can't concentrate on anything if you could just see bugs. Yeah, that's absolutely nuts. Yeah. That's really, yeah. So despite the bugs, it was completely fabulous. Okay, well, that's that's when you know a film is really good, is if it can manage to... Overcome the bugs. To overcome that kind of problem. Right. Uh, We're just going to give you a little burst of squeeze here because we were talking... Um, here we go. This is the movie that closes it. Tell us about the. This is uh, Hackers, isn't it? This is Hackers. Yeah, the end of Hackers. We were talking about the fact that um, uh, the uh, that Hackers has got this this soundtrack, which is you know kind of uh, prototype techno and all that sort of stuff. And then at the end of it, suddenly there's this kind of <laughs> this burst of squeeze, which is completely at odds with the music in the whole of the rest of the film, but actually works rather brilliantly for that sequence. Well, uh, yeah, and very wistful. And here we are talking all over it. So here's a little bit. Okay. But the truth has been seized We are like chalk and cheese You wind me up and I drive you mad It's a fact of life It goes hand in hand And I know that look It's red like a book And I realise I don't care what the world so we have to talk every 30 seconds and they're obviously building up for the chorus so I'm just okay. talking now so right, we, back don't, off. Uh, we don't have to here. That's what I thought it was called cool, though. So I was just being quiet up to the chorus. Then the chorus starts, and then you then you talk all the way through it. I don't yeah, know. Well, sorry. No there mus- we go. No musical sensibilities there. Are we doing DVD of the week? I only ask in passing. Well, we were going to get to it, but I was just... No, I that's mean, fine. No, carry on. I mean... There you go. You asked for it. Here it Thank comes. You. you asked for it. You got it. Not all. <laughs> that's, that's even creepier when I can't see you doing it. <laughs> hey... Yeah. <laughs> Captain America, put down that nearly indestructible shield that you throw at your foes. We're a peace-loving squad here at Wittertainment. What are you going to pick as his home entertainment release of the week? What would you pick? And what would Captain America pick? <laughs> Captain America pick. Ian Lambert. Steve Rogers strikes me as a Florence Foster Jenkins fan, definitely. It's the whole evocation of an era he can relate to. I'd go for bananas. Mark will probably agree with Cap. Uh, Paul Walker, Captain America, obviously. Woody Allen fan, I would have thought. Joseph Lear, I would go for Captain America Civil War as while I've had a somewhat rocky relationship with the Marvel films, this one really worked for me. I think Mark will go for Florence Foster Jenkins. And Alex Harrison, I'm hoping for The Boy and the Beast since Asoda was probably one of the most interesting working anime directors in my opinion, but Mark is going to go for Florence Foster Jenkins. Jason Simpson, I'll be picking up Marvel Cosplay Parade Flight Extravaganza but I think Mark will pick 
Florence Foster Jenkins. Well, maybe you're all wrong. Mark, what is our DVD of the week? Florence Foster Jenkins. <laughs> oh, you so, surprised. No, I know, I know. But the thing is, I, I, love, I mean, you, you really liked it too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just loved it. I think it's a wonderful retelling of that story. You and I feel slightly differently about whether or not the film is laughing at or with its uh, central no, character. No, well, I'm right because it's doing both. No, okay, that that's fine. I mean, I what I and I've seen it three times now. What I love about it is the tenderness, the generosity of the performances. I think Hugh Grant is—it's the performance of his career. I think he's absolutely brilliant as Sinclair Bayfield. I think he does a you know wonderful job. I think even more than the character of Cosmic McMoon, it's it's Sinclair who you you kind of draws you into the drama. And then Meryl Streep doing this brilliant thing, which is giving you a portrait of somebody who was referred to as the the first lady of the sliding scale, the diva of Din, uh, and somebody who, you know, could not hold an operatic tune and yet clearly had a musicality and had a love of music and a passion for music that somehow gets beyond the fact that she can't hear that she's singing out of tune. And you end up... I mean, I, I loved it. I laughed, I cried, I was moved, I was enchanted... And, you know, bear in mind, I really like Marguerite, which was the French film um, Catherine Frotter had been in before and had won, you know, César for, I think. And so I was very suspicious of Florence Foster Jenkins, but it just, just dynamite. Just loved it. Well, hey, Mark, you've been fabulous. I hope well, you have a lovely time in Shetland there. You've been fabulous. I thought you managed very well in that bit when I suddenly wasn't on the programme because I could still hear you, and I thought you did a brilliant job of uh, handling it without Thanks. me. Well, I just read an email out, which is, you know, not the toughest I thing know. I've ever done. But I, I was thinking, I wonder how, I wonder how much stuff I've got here to get through if yeah. you just don't reappear. How much of the show do you think you could do if I, if I didn't come back? Well, there would have been the interview, which was 13 yeah. minutes. There's probably about 10 minutes worth of emails. Then I could have taken calls. Yeah. Uh, then I could have done some rehearsals for All, All Request Friday. We're going to open <laughs> with hits from 1981. Do you know uh, how much of the show I could have done without you? Almost all of it. You don't no, need me at all. None. No, because Because unless you say, have we got a review coming up? I can't even start. That's why when I say to you, shall I do a thing now? And you go, that's a rhetorical question. No, it's not. I can't do it unless you... Unless you, you say... You always now, need someone to say... No, I need you. you it's not someone. Oh. I do, but I specifically need you to say, and now do this. Oh, OK. Well, look, let's now finish. But let, we could do some Burr Lives before we go. Which Burr Lives have we got? Ugly Bug Ball? OK, so we had some Roger Glover. Yeah, uh, which we, I hadn't heard of. Even, and, and even had you sung a, a note-perfect rendition of it, I still wouldn't have known what it was. But now we've got a crawl, got a crawl, got a crawl. Fantastic. Once a lonely caterpillar sat and cried To a sympathetic beetle by his side I've got nobody to hug I'm such an ugly bug Then a spider and a dragonfly replied If you're serious and want to win a bride Come along with us to the glorious annual ugly bug ball Come on, let's crawl, gotta crawl, gotta crawl To the ugly bug ball, to the ball, to the ball And a happy time we'll have there One and all at the ugly bug ball On digital and online. This is BBC Radio 5 Live. bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live.